Hello, and welcome to the Nest Podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Benedict Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 64th episode of the Nauticast entitled Shadow Puppets, an analysis of a Game of Thrones Daenerys 8 in which George R.R. R. Martin gets his horror on as everything, oh my god, everything collapses around Danny, Personally, politically, and of course, <sighs> Emmett, of course it's going to happen magically too, isn't it? My favorite part, as always. And yeah, this is one of those chapters, and I know we say this a lot in book one, that I just so vividly remember my first time through and it just hooked me in so strongly and I was like, well, I, I have to read book two now and book three and whatever else is available. I was just so into how George is writing this world. It's a really good chapter. I was kind of shocked myself rereading it. And, you know, it's kind of funny. I've been shocked a lot of times in rereading Danny's chapters in the Game of Thrones because I'm always like just waiting for her to get to her Storm of Swords arc, which is one of my favorites in the book. Uh, and, of course, get into her Dance with Dragons arc, which is my ultimate favorite Danny arc in A Song of Ice and Fire. But I'm really kind of surprised as we're going through a Game of Thrones, how compelling everything about her is to include even, yes, Emma, the magic part of it. More more my area than yours, sir, I know, but I think we're going to have a lot of fun talking about it, just like we have a lot of fun talking about the battle chapters that are more purview. We just go well together, sir, like 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 chocolate and peanut butter. There you go. Chocolate or peanut butter or chocolate and jelly. Wait, peanut butter and jelly, right? Not chocolate and jelly. I guess you could have chocolate and jelly. It's, this is America. You can do whatever you want here. We got freedom. The essence of freedom right there, Jeff. That is absolutely true. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Timothy W., Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warn of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warn of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Baby the Onion Baby, Lord Blackheart the Defiant, Master of Zorse, Lord Micah, Ward of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised, the High Bearded Priest, the Blue Ringed Octoling, and our latest member of our small council. Everyone give a round of applause to Lord Jake, assistant to the Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack. Welcome, Lord Jake. Really appreciate you signing on with us. Absolutely. Thank you, counselors, as always. And a special welcome to Lord Jake, assistant to the Hand of the King. Not assistant Hand of the King, but assistant to the Hand of the King. Always appreciate a good office reference here. Absolutely. The office is one of those shows that is always worth referencing here. And of course, again, once again, thank you to Lord Jake for joining us on our small council. We really appreciate it. It's awesome, man. Thank you so much. As always, our spoiler warning, we'll be talking potentially about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winsmith Sampson, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Lady Carolee, who asks, Are there any theories, essays, or predictions that Danny will turn into an actual dragon at some point? I keep thinking about the Targs that tried or thought they could, especially the Mad King hoping to rise like a phoenix, as well as Lightbringer being tempered three times. Danny has burned twice. Do you think she will burn something to get out of her Dothraki situation in the book? I wonder what would happen if she burns three times. Also, is there a character you really want to make it? Mine is Gilly. She's had so much sadness, and I just want her to be warm and safe and happy. So how about that, Jeff? Do you think Danny's going to turn into an actual dragon, and who's the character you really demand survives this story? 
Oh, man. Will Danny turn to an actual dragon? Well, yes, of course. Metaphorically, of course. But um, as, as a physical dragon, no, I don't think that's going to happen. Now, there is that great theory that we talked about a few episodes back, I believe in Danny 7, where we talked about how Valyrians had allegedly had some sort of melding slash sexual intercourse with actual dragons and that's where their dragon genetics come from and that is a little bit explored in the world of ice and fire and you do imagine that potentially in Arya's wins winter chapters or maybe danny's wins winter chapters that we will get maybe a little bit more about what actually happened that made the valyrians so special and allowed them to become dragon riders it's i think it's a more interesting question to ponder about danny's metaphorical turn to a dragon in Storm of Swords especially, we start to see Danny start to identify herself as a dragon, quote, an avenging dragon at the end of A Storm of Swords. And this filters into A Dance with Dragons, where she also thinks about how her fire was a fury in her belly after she allows Skahazmo Kandak to torture two of the wine cellar's daughters. And she associates that with her dra- draconic imagery. At the same time, though, in A Dance with Dragons, Daenerys Targaryen chains two of her dragons, and her, the chaining of her dragons is her restraining her metaphorical dragon identity in order to pursue peace in Marine. And I think that's more interesting. And I think not to say that Danny changing into dragon might not be like fucking metal and badass, but at the same time, you know, we want. I think it's more interesting that Danny is kind of a resembling the dragons that she birthed or gave birth to in some fashion, some magical fashion. We'll get to that in just like two more Danny chapters after this one. Danny turning into a dragon, though, what that actually means is that her embracing that kind of violent, messianic figure of destiny that I, you know, I, I wrote like about five years ago now. Adam Feldman wrote in the Mirrorney's Blot about Danny's identity, her darker turn coming in the Winds of Winter. And I think when we get to the Winds of Winter, one of the questions one of the questions that Lady Carolee asks is, will Danny burn something to get out of her Dothraki situation? Yes, I believe she will burn something, more like someone, namely Mago and Jaco, the two Dothraki men who are likely who she will encounter in the Winds of Winter and who George has talked about specifically about Mago will be a compelling antagonist and recurring antagonist to Daenerys Targaryen throughout her arc. So I think that's more of what George is going for, that Danny will be a metaphorical as opposed to actual dragon in the books. As to the question of what which character I want to survive, well, I mean, Jane Poole. I mean, is there anyone in this story who has suffered more than Jane Poole? Everything that has gone on with her is horrible, horrific. I want her to be happy. I want her to live a life in Bravos, free from Westeros and the wars there and all of the horrible Game of Thrones that she's had to endure. That's what I that's who I really want to survive is Jane Poole. I mean, Gilly, Gilly's great. I want Gilly to survive too. Don't get me wrong. There's numerous characters that want to survive, but the one who deserves to survive the most is Jane Poole. And I stand on that forever. I wish only the best for Jane Poole. She certainly deserves a, a happy, carefree life out of this series, if anybody does. And I agree with you about Danny and the Dragons. Obviously, this is a series in which we see people skin changing into animals and people. We saw poor Arya Targaryen in Fire and Blood involved physically with some sort of weird fireworm creature that infested her. So this sort of thing can't be dismissed out of hand. But I think it's worth remembering that originally George wasn't even going to have literal dragons in A Song of Ice and Fire. And I think it's overall for the betterment of the series that he did. But the fact that they weren't in the original plan suggests that they exist more strictly on the metaphorical plane. That they are, they represent power. Fire is flesh and, and fire is power, as Quaith puts it in A Clash of Kings, our favorite character, Quaith. <laughs> and, you know, you have Zerozo and Daxos describing them as like this flaming sword hanging in dread and destruction above the world. You have George himself comparing them to, to nuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction. So I think that, yeah, the dragons represent the side of Daenerys that would 
use instruments like that, use instruments of destruction and terror, albeit for sympathetic reasons for the most part. And as you say, in, in Dance with Dragons, what makes her story so compelling is that she's explicitly wrestling with that side of herself and ultimately coming down on the dragon side at the end of the book, right when she runs into the Dothraki, including Jaco and Mago. So that I agree completely. That's going to be the beginning of her turn to comparative darkness and the winds of winter and how she uses her dragons and her dragon fire is going to be absolutely central to that. In terms of the character I want to see survive, this will not be a surprising choice to anyone who knows me. I'm going to go with Davos. Obviously, Davos deserves the world as as probably the closest thing a Song of Ice and Fire has to a moral compass. But also, unlike in the show, he still has a family to, to go back to. Uh, he, he, he didn't just have the one son like in the show. He has seven sons, four of whom died on the Blackwater, one of whom uh, is with Melisandre now at the Wall. I don't know if he's going to make it. Little Devon, sadly, but... Davos has his wife Maria at home, who he sent a very emotional letter to in A Dance with Dragons, apologizing for having neglected her. And he has his two younger sons, Stannis and Stefan Seaworth. So I, I really hope that the, like, the end of the last Davos POV chapter in Song of Ice and Fire is him getting to go home to them, like, like Odysseus, or in a slightly different tone like Samwise Gamgee, and, and just getting to, to settle down with them. As he says in A Storm of Swords, if he makes it out of service to Stannis alive, he wants to, to go home to his wife, grieve for their dead sons, raise the living ones to be good men, and speak no more of kings. Hmm, that's so good, man. Like, I, I you, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because Davos Seaworth was another character that George R. R. Martin had never envisioned until he realized that he had to write a story about Stannis Baratheon, but he didn't want to have Stannis Baratheon as a point of view character. So he invented the character of Davos Seaworth. But the fact that he's been able to put all of these pathos and all of this emotion into the story about like characters we haven't even seen. We have not met Maria or his two younger sons, but they're so impactful for Davos Seaworth. You you mentioned that's that line from A Storm of Swords. I think of that letter that he writes to Maria in The Wolf's Den in A Dance with Dragons, where he concludes with, I'm so sorry, Maria. Like it's just so heart-wrenching and you just feel so much of what Davos is feeling. And I really, really hope that Davos is one of those characters that does make it out of the books alive. And, you know, season eight has Davos Seaworth surviving the series. So maybe that's a hint that he is one of the ones who's going to make it. And I, that would make me quite happy, ultimately. Me as well. And it was very appropriate to have him as master of ships on Bran's small council, making fun of Bronn for his new string of titles. That was very Davos-ish. But yeah, that line from Storm and his letter to Maria in Dance makes me think and hope that Davos, at the end of his journey in the books, is going to give up politics altogether to the degree that he can do that. I imagine him going home to a simple life, so to speak. Simple life is the one worth living for sure for Davos and for everyone really, but it's not going to be the case for everyone, unfortunately. So thank you, Lady Kara Lee, for the question and your question about Daenerys as a dragon features so... And that question about Daenerys as a physical dragon or metaphorical one, as Em and I both talked about, is a great way to transition into talking about this chapter because this chapter, Daenerys 8, is one of those chapters that more than anything else thrusts Danny into that magical plot line, which ends up birthing the dragons at the end of a Game of Thrones. And that is very, very exciting. Of course, the pathway to get there is horrific and terrible and horrifying. And you're going to hear about that momentarily in this synopsis for Game of Thrones, Daenerys 8. Bloodflies, large as bees, gross, purplish, glistening, close in on Khal Drogo to Daenerys Targaryen's horror. Death is coming for Khal Drogo, and Daenerys knows it at a subconscious level. Where Drogo had once reached out quick as a cat and snatched bloodflies from the air before crushing them to death in his hand, the bloodflies are now landing on Drogo's horse, low-crawling up the hide and making their way towards the Great Call. 
all the while, Drogo stares at distant hills. Well, Emmett, this is a horrifying way to open a chapter. Utterly horrifying, rather. Sure hope George subverts our expectations that the chapter closes with flowers, sunshine, and gumdrop smiles. Right, right. Oh, and then he began to scream. We flash back to Drogo after their departure from the burning Lazarine town. The poultice that Miri Mazdor placed over Drogo's wound had caused an unbearable itch, and Drogo had ripped it off. A mud plaster the eunuch slaves fashioned for him had soothed Drogo's itch, while herb women made Drogo poppy wine, fermented mare's milk, and pepper beer that the call had drank quite vigorously. But even though he wasn't itching so bad while they rode, the knights showed Drogo's true state. He would writhe in pain, groaning and his face stretched out in anguish. And while all this was happening, the unborn Rego grew restless in Danny's belly. And very sadly, Drogo's interest in his unborn child in Rego had drifted away due to all of the pain that he was experiencing. And now a horse, his eyes fixed on distant hills, Drogo is silent. And that scares the shit out of Danny. We return to the present as one of the blood flies lands on Drogo's shoulder and another on his neck. And Drogo begins to lean to the left, lean to the right, crisscross this time, crisscross this time. But his stallion presses on. My lord, Danny said, Drogo, my sun and stars. Drogo doesn't seem to hear her. Another fly settles on his neck. Danny reaches out for him, touching his arm, and Drogo balls from his horse, the fly scattering from his body. A pregnant Danny vaults from a horse and rushes over to a Drogo, crying out in pain. His breath rasps as he cries out for his horse. Danny touches Drogo and feels that Drogo's skin is hot and burning. Drogo's blooders come pounding up from behind, shouting as they dismount their horses and rush over to Drogo. No, Kyle Drogo groans, struggling in Danny's arms. Must ride! No, ride! Drogo's blood runner Hago states that Drogo fell from his horse, but Danny tells him to shut the fuck up. They're making camp here. Hago is skeptical, to say the least. This brown, waterless ground is no campsite. I mean, Danny, where the hell are they even going to park the camper? Another blood rider, the Kotho, helpfully puts in that he's not taking orders from Subwoman, not even a Khaleesi. But Danny won't let them refuse her command. They're camping here, and if anyone asks, Drobo, Drogo commanded it. Her time to give birth was near, and that's the reason y'all are going to give if anyone asks. Danny orders Drogo's tent to be erected, but her blood riders scoff at her. But when she orders Miri door to be brought to Drogo, the Kyle's blood riders damn near mutiny right then and there. Kotho says he will not do that, but Danny tells him there's a goddamn chain of command. And you know what that means? To paraphrase Jane from the TV show Firefly, it means that if you don't go get Miri, Drogo is going to beat you to death with a chain when he wakes up. Kotho scurries away, galloping off in anger, but Danny knows that he's going to return with Miri door. Daenerys, order, Daenerys then orders the slaves to erect Drogo's tent beneath the shadow under a black rock, which, Danny, come on, we really need to talk about how you are consistently choosing incredibly fucking ominous sites to rest your feet for a minute before major plot beats erupt in the narrative. It's as if you're almost a book character and the author is thumbing the scales or something. <clears throat> Where was I? Ah, uh, yes. Everyone helps Drogo get inside the tent as he continues to cry out, no, no, no. Doria and Jiqui get Drogo nice and nude, and then Jiqui suggests opening the tent flap to let the cool breeze in. But Danny ain't gonna let the Kalasar catch a glimpse of Drogo in the state that he's in. Admit no one without my leave. No one. Aroe, the Lazarine girl Danny saved back in her last chapter, whispers that Drogo is going to die, and Danny proceeds to slap her, saying that he's not going to die. He's a champion. His hair has never been cut. But Khaleesi, Jiqui says, he fell from his horse. 
and it's in that moment that Danny knows the truth. Drogo had fallen from his horse, and lots of people saw the event, and they wouldn't keep it a secret. Danny realizes that Drogo's fall would have big fucking consequences. A Kal who could not ride could not rule, and Drogo had fallen from his horse. Danny engages in a little bit of cognitive dissonance, ordering cool water to be fetched and Drogo to be bathed in that cool water. When he's placed into the tub, his mouth and eyes open, but Danny hears no words coming from his mouth and realizes that no sight is reaching his eyes. Aggravated and scared, Danny wonders where the hell Miri Ma's door is as tepid water is placed into the tub. She undoes Drogo's braid, laying his bells aside, thinking that Drogo would want them when he wakes up. But then a gust of air comes from outside, and her ka, Ago, comes in to tell Danny that Jorah is waiting for her outside of the tent. Danny bids Ago to tell Jorah to come into the tent. Jorah enters, wearing his best Lawrence of Arabia costume he picked up from his local party city, and tells Danny that word is getting around about Drogo's fall. Danny tells him to help Drogo, and the knight goes to Drogo's side. The knight then orders Danny to dismiss her handmaids. Then he takes his knife out and cuts away the dry plaster that the eunuchs put on Drogo's wound. A foul smell of death fills the room as Danny sees that the wound has festered. No, Danny whispered as tears ran down her cheeks. No, please, gods, hear me. No. But Jorah tells Danny that Drogo is good as dead. Danny does some stage one grief, saying that Drogo can't die. He must not. She won't let him die. But Jorah only tells her that he's going to die, dude. And then Jorah, probably realizing that this is his big chance to spirit the girl away he's projecting Lena's Hightower onto, tells Danny that now ain't the time for tears. Lady sh- later, sure. After, we, after they boned, of course. Now we got to get the fuck out of here. Wait, what? Why? Where the hell will we even go? A shy, I would say. It lies far to the south at the end of the known world. Yet men say it is a great port. We will find a ship to take us back to Pentos. It will be a hard journey. Make no mistake. Do you trust your cause? Will they come with us? Well, yeah, Danny trusts them. But if Drogo dies, she leaves the thought unfinished. But we know what she's really thinking. She doesn't understand why they need to go, though. She's carrying Drogo's unborn child, a boy who will be called after Drogo. But Jorah knows better. That ain't going to happen, Danny. That a Thraki follows strength. When Drogo dies, his co's are going to have a merry civil war over who will be called, and Rago will be taken from Danny and fed to dogs. But why, Danny cries, why would they kill a little baby? He is Drogo's son, and the crones say he will be the stallion who mounts the world. It was prophesied. Better to kill the child than to risk his fury when he grows to manhood. And Emmett, I gotta admit, there's a sick evil logic to what the Dothraki would do to Rago, even as I fundamentally, fundamentally recoil at the moral horror of it all. At least the unborn Rago agrees with me as he also recoils at the thought of being murdered as he kicks Danny's belly and Danny remembers what the quote usurper's dogs had done to poor Rainies and Aegon, Rhaegar's true kids. They'd been babies too, but that hadn't prevented their murders. Danny boils over an emotion, stating that the Dothraki can't hurt Rago, her cows will protect her. But again, Jorah is there to remind Danny of the cultural context she's currently in. A blood rider dies with his call. You know that child. They will take you to Vase Dothrak, to the crones. That is the last duty that they owe him in life. When it is done, they will join Drogo in the Nightlands. Well, Danny ain't about to go back to Vase Dothrak, fuck that shit, so she states that she's not going to leave Drogo, and who should arrive at that very moment but Miri Ba's door, to help ensure that Drogo doesn't die. Um, sort of. Not really. Oh my god, not really at all. 
The God's Wife enters the tent with Kotho and Hago carrying her chest of poisons. Wait, medicines behind her. When his blood eyes see the state that Drogo is in, they drop the chest of magic poisons. Wait, medicines again. To the ground as Beria examines Drogo. Beria's analysis is that Drogo's wound has festered. Yeah, it's your fault, you fucking murderer, Kotho and Hago say with their words, and then start punching Miri Mazdor in the face and subsequently start kicking her when she falls to the ground. Danny screams at them to stop, but Kotho says that these kicks are too merciful for Miri. Take her outside. We will stake her to the ground to be the mount of every passing man. And when they are done with her, the dogs will use her as well. Weasels will tear out her entrails, and carrion crows will feast upon her eyes. The flies off the river shall lay their eggs in her womb and drink pus from the ruins of her breasts. Well, Kotho, no one's going to top that. But Danny won't let them hurt her. But Kotho mock smiles at Danny and says that no woman tells him no. Hmm. Not a good outlook there, Kotho. She's lucky that the Dothraki blood rares don't stake her to the ground next to Beery. Drogo's death is as much Danny's fault as Miri's, according to them. Then Jorah steps between the blood riders and Danny, telling him to get fucked. Danny is still the Khaleesi. Only while the blood of my blood still lives. When he dies, she is nothing, Kotho says. Danny feels the tightness in her. Before I was Khaleesi, I was the blood of the dragon. Sir Jorah, summon my cause. But before we can get some hot Dothraki on Dothraki action, Kotho and Hago go scurrying away for now. When they're gone, Jorah tells Danny that these guys are fearless. No, not because of Dothraki, though that doesn't hurt, of course, because they know they're dead men. A dead man is beyond fear. Danny shoots back that no one has died yet, but Jorah, you're going to need to get your armor and sword on right quick, fast, in a hurry. Jorah agrees, bowing, and then leaves the tent. Thanks. Bye, Jorah. Get the fuck out. Now alone with Miri, the god's wife tells Danny that she saved her yet again. Well, return the fucking favor, Miri. Save Drogo, pretty please. Miri gets all sarcastic, saying, you don't ask a slave. You tell her. Miri takes another look at Drogo and comes back with the same conclusions as before. Yeah, no healer is going to help Drogo now. Miri adopts her best doctorly. You haven't quit smoking yet after I told you to quit, have you, Jeff? Tone of voice, and states that Drogo has been drinking milk of the poppy and hasn't kept the poultice she made for him on the wound. Danny admits that all these things are true, but Doc, I'm really going to quit smoking this time. I swear it. Miri then tells Danny that it's too late. Drogo's already got the lung cancer. Is this show getting old, annoying, and eh, whatever? Fuck it. He's going to die. All Miri can do now is not be the doctor anymore. She'll be Drogo's medic, though. And what is the difference between a medic and a doctor? Well, to quote my favorite line from the hottest viral video from 2004, Red vs. Blue, a doctor cures people. A medic just makes people feel better while they die. Miri Bazdor's words hit Danny like a bag of avocado toast dropped from a very high height. It would still hurt, guys. She begs Miri to save Drogo. You know, use some magic spells or some shit. Then Miri Mazdor leans back, smiling on the inside. There is a spell. Her voice was quiet, scarcely more than a whisper. But it is hard, lady, and dark. Some would say that death is cleaner. I learned the way in a shy and paid dear for the lesson. My teacher was a blood mage from the Shadowlands. Oh, shit. Blood mages? Damn it, Emmett. I thought this was a historical fiction novel. Where the hell did all these fantasy elements come in? I know, Jeff. Who would put fantasy elements in a fantasy story? I, <laughs> I understand your shock and horror completely. Uh, Danny grows cold all over and says that Miri truly is the magi everyone says she was. Am I? Miri Mazdor smiled. Only a magi can save your rider now, Silver Lady. You know, it just doesn't seem all that appropriate for Miri Mazdor to be speaking in riddles and smiling in that moment, Emmett. I mean, yeah, Drogo is lying there dying and Miri's got this shit-eating grin stretching across her face. I just kind of wonder whether there's more work behind that smile 
go listen to episode 61 to find out more about our opinions about Miri Mazdor and what she's really up to about Drogo and Daenerys Targaryen and of course the unborn Rhaegar too. Danny asks if there's no other way to save Drogo's life. Miri says, nope, sorry, can't help you there. It's either sorcery or the highway to hell. Danny tells her to do it, but Miri says there's a price. Okay, fine. Danny will pay her in gold, gems, slaves, whatever money she wants. Ah, uh, no, that's not what Miri means. She needs blood because only death may pay for life. Danny shudders and thinks that Miri is talking about her death. Oh, no, 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 not your death, Khaleesi, Miri tells her. Whew, that was a really close one there. Bring his horse instead. Wait, what? Bring what? Oh, no. We're going to add some animal cruelty in here, too. Great. Can't wait. Well, next, Jogo is leading Dan- Drogo's terrified, screaming red stallion into the tent. Danny asks Mary what she plans to do, and Mary says they need the blood. She had already said this, Danny. Did, weren't you listening before? Jogo puts her his hand on his arrack and pleads with Danny not to do this. And can we please just now kill Mary Mazdor? Pretty please? But no. Danny won't have Miri Mazdor killed, even if she's about to conduct forbidden blood magic. It's the same as when Danny ate the horse heart, right? That horse heart gave Rago strength. It's the same, the same, the same. Ago and Jogo then pull the horse towards the tub where Jogo floats as if he's already dead, with blood and pus seeping into the water. Lovely image. And then Miri Mazdor chants words and draws a knife that Danny never saw coming. And I just love this because this is such an interesting description of the knife, and I just have to read how how George describes it. It looked old, hammered red bronze, leaf-shaped, its blade covered with ancient glyphs. Miri cuts the horse's throat with her sacrificial knife, and the horse screams as blood pours into the bath. Danny's bloodwriters hold the horse in place so it doesn't collapse as Miri chants and sings about the strength of the beast going into the bin. All the while, Jogo looks fucking terrified because, oh my fucking god, we're doing fucking blood magic in this historical fiction. Wait, fantasy novel, you said that before. God, Emmett, we're just doing this. All this, where's this coming from? It's my fault, Jeff. I personally had George R. R. Martin add these elements. <laughs> That's true. Like the seven-year-old version of yourself when he was writing A Game of Thrones told George R. Martin that he needed to integrate these elements. I would love you to put horrible blood magic elements in your new novel, please. I don't know why I sound like a small child in a Christmas carol. <laughs> Today is Christmas Day, sir. <laughs> you, you Today do. is blood magic day, Yeah, sir. it's Dickensian. Oh my god, yes, it is blood magic day. Oh god, and, and my heart is now sinking. Well, the horse is now bleeding out into the tub, but when it finally bleeds out, the tub is filled with blood and tepid water. Danny's cause let the beast fall to the ground, and Danny tells her cause to burn it. But now let's focus more attention on all the blood because the tent looks like a room in Patrick Bateman's house with blood spatter all over the walls and rugs. Hooray? No. Brazers are then lit as Mary Mazdor tosses some red powder she borrowed from Melisandre of Ashai into the coals. Danny and her handmaids are, you know, a little scared of all this ritual sacrifice and magic rituals. So Mary Mazdor tells Danny and her buds to get out of the tent and don't come back. Danny says, no thanks. I'm not going anywhere. But Mary tells her, you must... Once I begin to dance, no one must enter the tent. My song will wake powers old and dark. The dead will dance here this night. No living man must look upon them. And you know, for all Miri Mazdor is, you know, not like Danny's friend, this seems like pretty decent advice. So Danny says, okay, fine. Bring it back to me, she says. Now outside, Danny finds the sun setting in the sky as a non-foreshadowy bruised red color with a hot wind blowing too. Hmm. Jogo and Ago dig a fire pit to burn Jogo's horse, and Danny finally sees Sir Jorah Mormont in his mail and leather sweating in the desert heat. He pushes his way over to Danny and asks her what she's done, adding in, you little fool, which first off, how dare you, Jorah? And second off, Danny is there saving Khal Drogo's life, of course. But Danny, Jorah whines and sort of says, you could have played Lenis Hightower for being a shy. Why did you do that? Danny stops him. Does Jorah truly consider Danny his princess? Yes, he does. Well, then fucking help, Slave Bear. 
but Jorah doesn't know how. The Danny hears Miri Mazdor's voice rising to a high, ululating wail. She turns back and sees the tent alive with light and shadows. Miri Mazdor was dancing and not alone. Oh my god, what story have I just stepped my ass into? God. Kotho and Hago step up next to Danny, shouting that this must not be. But Danny gives them the whole this will be response back to them. The two Bloodriders are joined by Kahalo, Drogo's oldest and kindest Bloodrider, the one who had treated Danny the best of all of his Bloodriders. And that man, well, he spits full in Danny's face and joins Kotho and Hago in calling for Beery to come out and die. Wow. Drogo's Bloodriders draw their Aurochs and move towards the tent. Danny tries to stop them, but she gets shoved aside by Kotho for her trouble. Stop them, she commands her cause. Kill them! Karo and Quaro block Kotho, Hago, and Kahalo's entrance to the tent. Quaro takes one step forward, but, Ko- but Kotho's Arak cuts him below the arm and slices into the rib- muscle and rib bone of Danny's young Ko. He falls backward, gasping. Kotho's just about to go and kill the shit out of Mirima's door, but then Jorah Mormont steps between him and the tent flap. Try me, he says. Kotho whirls, curses, and moves fast with his arc. It nearly gets Jorah's face, but Jorah is able to parry with his longsword. Jorah had gotten most of his armor on, but he hadn't quite managed to find a helmet. It's hardly heroic anyways. Kotho dances around trying to get at Jorah's head or gaps at his armor, and Slaybear does his best to dodge, dip, duck, dive, and dodge away from Kotho's cuts. One of the arc blows glances off Jorah's lobster gauntlet, and next, Danny sees Jorah stumbling backwards, blood running down his face, as Kotho calls him a dickless, cowardly milkman, which <laughs> it, it makes me giggle. I really shouldn't, but it does make me giggle. You die now, Kotho screams, making me giggle just a little bit less. Another savage cut, this one at Jorah's hip, where the, pl- where the armor is gapped, and Jorah grunts, but sadly, sadly doesn't die. The Arak catches in Jorah's bone, and Jorah brings his longsword down on Kotho, cutting his arm nearly off. The next sword blow lands on Kotho's ear, resulting in, and I have to quote George R. R. Martin here, Kotho's face seeming to fucking explode. Now, the fucking was my uh, integration to it, but, you know, it, it just helps paint the picture, picture a little bit better in my mind. Then utter fucking chaos breaks out all around Tadaris. Dothraki shout. Miri Mazdor wails with the shadows. Quaro dies, pleading for water. Rakaro fights with Hago until Jogo coils his whip around Hago's throat before Rakaro can bring his arc on Hago's head. Someone throws a rock, which who was the Jabroni who did that? Decided to start throwing rocks in the middle of this thing. Wow. But Danny begins pleading with the universe to make it stop. She weeps that the price is too high. She tries crawling towards the tent, but Kahalo catches her and starts dragging her back by her hair. He puts his knife to her throat and Danny screams, my baby. And the gods seemingly hear Daenerys as one of Ago's arrows. And do you guys remember Dothraki using arrows? Catches Kahalo under the arm, killing him instantly. Exhausted, Danny raises her head to find the crowd dispersing with the Dothraki returning to their tents and sleeping bags. The sun has gone down and the sky has turned black. But fires burn orange against the night sky. Danny rises to her feet with no strength left. She gasps, still hearing Miriam's door. But now her voice is, and I have to quote George here, like a funeral dirge. But the shadows, the shadows still dance, and the shadows still whirl. Jorah Mormont's arm hooks under Danny's waist and lifts her off her feet. Danny sees that his face is still sticky with blood, and part of his left ear is now gone. She convulses his pain, hearing the knight shouting her, shouting to Danny's handmaids to come help. Doria comes forward and tells Danny and Jorah that no one will come. The Dothraki think Danny cursed. Jorah threatens to behead anyone who won't come, but Doria tells him, They're gone, my lord. The Magi, someone else said. Was that Ago, Danny thinks? Take her to the Magi. Danny tries to say, No, not that. You mustn't. 
but when she opens her mouth, only a long wail of pain comes out. What was wrong with them? Couldn't they see? Danny turns to the tent, seeing shadows circling and dancing. And some of the shadows, well, now they don't look even human anymore. She glimpsed the shadow of a great wolf, and another like a man wreathed in flames. Eerie tells Joy that Miri knows the secrets of the birthing bed, and Doria agrees. Danny tries to scream no again, but nothing comes out of her lips this time. She was being carried, and had lost her mouth to scream. Her eyes opened to gaze up at a flat, dead sky, black and bleak and starless. Please, no. The sound of Miri Mazdor's voice grew louder until it filled the world. The shapes, she screamed. The dancers. Sir Jora carried her inside the tent. And that is A Game of Thrones, Daenerys 8. Did, what? How? Why? Come on. What did I just read there, Emmett? Right? Oh, God. Danny 8 is the ultimate bad trip. Everything is bleak. Everyone is miserable. Every square inch of this chapter is just oozing blood and sweat and pus and sorcery and death. It makes me sick to my stomach, physically sick to my stomach every time I read it, which I do a lot because I love it so much. As with The Whispering Wood and all the gorgeous prose we discussed last week, Danny 8 is a case study in writing an effective mood piece. This one is exploring a very different mood, though. Catelyn 10 was all about Catelyn looking at the beautiful pines all silvered in moonlight and listening to the wind pass through her hair. And yeah, there was a battle happening somewhere close nearby, but it was more just like, you know, oh, look at that owl. What is it thinking? It was that kind of chapter. This one, it's as if George turned to the audience and says, hey, enjoying the high fantasy, everybody? Good, good. Now, you may have forgotten since the prologue, but I actually cut my teeth in horror. And the audience goes, wait, what? And George goes, here we go. He snaps his fingers and the nightmare begins. Like the prologue, it's all about the descent, the sense of a trap slowly agonizingly springing shut around our protagonist. And before we get into all the imagery and themes and ways this chapter builds on what's come before in Danny's story and feeds perfectly into what's coming next, it's that viciously precise structure which makes Danny 8 such a standalone masterpiece of horror. It's a perfectly constructed highway to hell. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. You know, George R. R. Martin didn't originally start writing high fantasy stories when he got to start in writing. He started doing a lot of science fiction books. But in the early 1980s, he began to transition, not totally away from science fiction, but he began to transition to expanding his writing world, to writing horror books. And the way that he did this was to write his very popular and very excellent 1982 vampire novel, Fever Dream, which, as a little plug for a patron, if you are interested, if we reach our next stretch goal of $5,000 a month, we will start to cover Fever Dream chapter by chapter. So if you've enjoyed this format and you've enjoyed some of our other Patreon episodes, for those of you who are current patrons, check us out at patreon.com forward slash notacastasof. Okay, plug done. But that book is very much constructed as really excellent horror. Now, I'm, I'm not a horror fan. I do not read horror. It scares me. I'm a big fucking baby. And I, I just don't do not do it because I, I don't watch scary movies either. I, I, I have enough scary things happening in my life or have happened in my life that I'm like, you know, I'm good not riding the roller coaster or reading horror novels. But I did read Fever Dream and I was compelled by it. And I think the reason why I was so compelled by it was how the characters are drawn in the story and how the themes are interweaved in there. But also how the emotions work really well. Because 
And that, and that same motif exists here in Danny's eighth chapter in A Game of Thrones, where yes, there is a horror, magic, high fantasy element there that is present in the chapter, but it's all drawn through the emotions and the character beats that George perfectly constructs here. And you were, you were talking earlier about how this chapter was the one that wanted to make you just progress on and read more and more of A Song of Ice and Fire when you were first reading these books. And for me, it did the same thing, but in a different way. You were like, oh my God, yeah, fuck yeah, horror, you know, all of these, all this magic and shit like that. But for me, I'm like, oh my God, look at all these great emotions that are being like constrained through this medium that I'm just not familiar with at all that I typically reject. But I want to like read more and more about the story as, as and the same thing goes for Fever Dream too. So I think you're absolutely right. It is a perfectly constructed highway to hell. And the highway to hell is littered with the corpses of the emotional states of the characters in this chapter. And I absolutely love that. Beautifully put, sir. And yeah, I am a huge horror fan. I think there's a catharsis to be found in the genre when it's done well that you just you can't find anywhere else. And you, know, you can think about a horror as being an interruption, both in, mm. in, in universe and in the, in the terms that horror elements in the story tend to emerge suddenly and attack characters so to speak and it's also an interruption for for the for the reader as you were experiencing the synopsis you just kept going wait what wait what's happening oh my god what and you know that's that's how horror works but it's important to note that as with the prologue danny eight wouldn't be nearly as effective if the horror took the form of like a jump scare suddenly emerging 90 percent of the way through the chapter unrelated to what came before george understands that meticulous pacing is the key to great horror and that by the same token, sloppy pacing is the downfall of mediocre horror. It's all about, and this is something we talked about regarding Game of Thrones Season 8, striking a balance between expectation and shock. You don't want, mm. you don't want the audience to know what's going to happen before it happens, but you still have to prime them for the gut punch so it doesn't feel like it's just coming completely out of the ether. Now, per the prologue, you need this sort of thing. Until tonight. Something was different tonight. That's what Will said when they were going into the woods in the prologue, and he could kind of feel the others watching him from the trees. That doesn't give away what's going to happen, certainly doesn't give away the specifics of what the White Walker is going to look like and do, but it raises your hackles so you're prepared for it. That may sound like too fine a distinction, but I really think it's one of the reasons this particular series made all the money when others in its genre didn't. And this is why my favorite artists tend to be those with a mastery of tone. Because if you properly establish your tone, the audience will follow you wherever you go, as we see with the crazy hijinks at the end of this chapter. And as such, George is working overtime in Danny 8 to establish this singular tone of skin-crawling discomfort and fear before the events that justify that tone. He sets the tone up first. As such, when you get to the end and Miri Mazdur is dancing with eldritch shadows and the Kalisar is collapsing into fire and blood and Danny's just weeping on the ground... It's all the more gripping and exciting because it doesn't feel arbitrary. And it doesn't feel arbitrary because the tone fits those plot points like a glove. So let's, let's go, just go over briefly how George cements that queasy horror tone. First up is, is sensory details. He wants you to feel this chapter as much as he's reading it. You know, the sun was high and pitiless. Heat shimmered in waves off the stony outcrops of low hills. A thin finger of sweat trickled slowly between Danny's swollen breasts. Like, it's, you're supposed to feel uncomfortable. You're supposed to start, like, mm -hmm. itching in your chair going, ooh, ooh, this is, this is not good in a compelling way. Like, I, my, my skin's starting to itch, and I'm raising my shoulders, and I'm, I'm scratching my head. And it's like, man, is the, is the AC on? Someone put the AC on mm -hmm. in here. That's what George wants you to feel because he wants you to be locked into this moment so he feels like you're as, as trapped as Danny is. You get all these bad smells. And it's like I can smell Drogo's wound when George describes it as Jorah chips away what's left of the, the poultice and you get like this festering black skin. You got the flies buzzing around Drogo. I can just hear that buzzing in my ear. You get the constant emphasis on 
on red, on the color of blood. The sky is a bruised red and Drogo's horse is red. Everything is blood, symbolically. And then you've got great elements of body horror. You've got Drogo's wound, of course. You've got the sense that he's, he's collapsing. You've got all of Danny's discomfort. You've got the, the, like, the horrible details Quotho goes into about what's going to happen to Miri Mazdur. Like, not just that she's going to be, you know, attacked and raped, although, of course, that's horrible enough, but, like, the maggots are going to, like, crawl through her and animals are going to lay eggs in her. And in part, that's there to establish uh, some sympathy on our part for Miri Mazdur, and we'll get into more about how George uses that later. But it's also there just to fit into this tone that everything in this chapter feels like like worms crawling through rotten meat. You know what I mean? Like, that's just the image and the feel you get off this chapter. And and then you, of course, have physical violence or the threat of physical violence in Quotho's case. And that's kind of constantly under the surface of this chapter, too. And it's all there to just to make you feel that things are about to fall apart. And so when that again, so when things do fall apart, it makes sense. It fits. It feels like this is a natural progression. Things are going crazy in a way I couldn't have predicted. But it's it's all coming from this tonal foundation. I think that's a fantastic point that when we're talking about this chapter, like the easy way to go about doing it is for George to basically describe like a point A to point B to point C declination in terms of the writing. Like, yeah, Drogo fell from his horse. Then, you know, Miri Mazdor comes and she starts dancing and blah, 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 blah. But he sets the tone really, really well with the elements that you describe. And I just want to call out one specific element because I think it's something interesting that George does in writing in that he often will symbolize events that are occur that will occur later in the chapter or have occurred in the previous chapter and will start meeting its way out into later chapters in the story through the use of metaphor. We see this in Aria 5, which is the chapter that we will be covering tonight if you guys are listening to our general release on our live stream episode, as well as those who will be listening to next week when you listen to it regularly here. There's an interesting way this chapter starts, namely with the blood flies buzzing around Drogo and starting to creep up towards him. And Danny remembers how how Khal Drogo used to catch the flies, and he wouldn't just crush them with his hand. He would let them flutter around in his hand before he would crush them. And I think, and maybe I'm just overthinking here, so come back and talk to me if you think I am, but I think that is sort of a metaphor for the way that Drogo and the Dothraki dealt with the Lazarine town in the last Danny chapter in Daenerys 7, where Drogo had taken these people, given them some sort of feeling of salvation because he was rescuing them from the other calls that were attacking them, and then he crushed them and let the blood just flow through that Lazarine town. But ultimately, it's not Drogo who wins out against the Bloodflies. Ultimately, it's the Bloodflies, or the Lazarine in this case, who ultimately win out over Drogo, namely in the use of blood magic and Miri Mazdor's use of blood magic to sacrifice Drogo and sacrifice him as a human being to become this husk of a man that we come to meet a little more uh, in depth in Daenerys 9. And I think it's really, really good that all of that is done in the context of the Dothraki, in the context of the Lazarine. And I really love the kind of the blood imagery that George is kind of embedding into the chapter early on. But the other thing I really love is how the cultural mores of the Dothraki are explored in greater and greater depth in this chapter. I think you nailed it, sir. I love that metaphor. It reminds me so much of the great metaphor in Cersei's first POV chapter in A Feast for Crows, where she's going to visit her father's a deathbed and she she has this this uh lantern and there's there's a moth buzzing around the flame and she just thinks oh fly into it and die and get it over with 
And the joke is that Cersei doesn't realize that the bug is a metaphor for her. She, she She's the one dancing around the flame of power, or a literal flame in the wildfire's case, and it will eventually consume her whole. And I think you can see a similar thing at work here with Drogo. And obviously, yeah, that relationship between the Dothraki and the Lazarene is so crucial to what happens to Drogo and so crucial to Mary Mazdur's character. But before we get into her, as you say, the other fascinating aspect about this chapter besides the tone is how George really nailed the Dothraki world building, the Dothraki culture, and really integrates it into the plot, which is what makes it effective. Like, for the most part, as we've talked about, the Dothraki world building in, Danny, in Danny's story in A Game of Thrones is interesting, but it's usually either just window dressing or it's just fodder for Danny's personal identity slash assimilation arc that will continue throughout the series. Generally speaking, the Dothraki moors have not informed the plot itself, I mean, Viserys' death was rooted in that because he was wielding a sword and vice Dothrak. But this really, I think, this chapter is where you see the perfect marriage of world building and plot progression. The problem Danny is responding to, the way she tries to deal with it, and the catastrophic outcome of her attempts are all rooted in the culture of the Kalasar. It's not just that Drogo is, is sick or wounded. It's that he, quote, fell from his horse. That's a phrase they repeat over and over in the early parts of this chapter. He fell from his horse, emphasizing what a big deal that is. It's a political death sentence among the Dothraki, as even Danny knows by now, a cow who cannot ride cannot lead. For a variety of reasons. I mean, horses are just how you get around on the Dothraki Sea. It's not reasonable to just walk on a just a gigantic, like, half-continent-wide plain like this. And they're how you escape wastelands like this for better pastures, as the Blood Riders say, this is no camping land, because neither the humans nor the horses can eat. So you need the horses to get you to somewhere more livable. And, of course, they're crucial to Dothraki warfare. A huge part of Dothraki warfare is just the the physical and psychological impact of the Dothraki screamers coming on you with their horses and firing arrows from their saddles. And, obviously, Dothraki warfare is, is all tied up in who gets to lead the cow, and especially in the reputation of someone like Drogo. So Drogo falling from his horse is the end, as Danny and her servants realize at some level. It sig signifies that the Kalasar is about to fall apart and that Drogo cannot lead. I mean, if you're... Viserys, as we saw earlier in Danny's storyline in this book, you want to ride around in a cart. You don't want to ride on a horse. You want to just sit back under like an awning and have servants carry you around like you're Cersei. That's a sign of power and authority in Westeros that you have been able to make these lowly servants do this for you. But among the Dothraki, it makes you a, a, a figure of scorn. It makes you a Kalragat, a cart king. That's not who Drogo can be if he wants to be in charge. He controls the Kalasar through his unquestioned monopoly on violence, rooted in his physical strength and that of his blood riders. Now that Monopoly is failing and his blood riders know it, everything is public in the Kalasar, right? That's what we learned before. That's what Danny learned before. She brought Drogo out to have sex on the night where she was on top and they conceived Rago because she knew that the, the Kalasar witnessing it would be a powerful event, would tie her and her baby to them and make her Dothraki at some level. But the flip side of that is your weakness is also public. You can't keep it like you, you have what a Viserys the first when he dies, King Viserys the first and uh, Alicent Hightower and her, her green faction are able to keep it secret for a little while. You can't do that with the Dothraki. Everything is public, and, and, and that's that's coming back to, to haunt Danny, and it's it's directly relevant to the plot. And, you know, in this political context, Drogo's blood riders suddenly flip. They're not Danny's servants anymore. Now they're potential enemies. Now they might hurt her or drag her down from her position, hurt her child, because her authority over them as we see early on in this chapter, is rooted in Drogo. She can only make them do what she says with the appeal of, when Drogo wakes up, you'll be sorry you didn't listen to me. But what if Drogo doesn't wake up? Drogo fell from his horse. He might not be in charge anymore. And without him, what is she? How can she protect herself, let alone the likes of poor Aroha? You see Danny desperately leveraging her last scraps of powers as they slip away like sand in an hourglass. 
And it's 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 all to try and save Drogo's life. It's enough to get a tent set up. It's enough to get Miriam Azdur brought to her. But, you know, Danny still lacks a complete understanding of that Dothraki culture, as her conversation with Jorah about what will happen next makes clear. She thinks she can protect herself by ruling through baby Rago. It's not dissimilar from how Cersei intends to rule through Joffrey. As we've said, Drogo is kind of an exaggerated version of Robert, so that, that fits the parallel. But that's just, again, that's just not how the Dothraki work. It's different from Westeros. Rago cannot ride his horse in the first place as a baby, let alone fall from it. He can't be a war leader. He can't hold that monopoly on violence. The Kalisar is not going to obey just Danny, And the Blood Riders, who in a Westerosi context might be useful regents or just enforcers, in this case, are going to traditionally follow their cal into the grave. So they're not going to be around. It works so well that, you know, that Drogo is reduced to saying just no, no, over, over and over again, just like on their wedding night, because you get the sense of it all coming full circle. Danny is back to that helpless position she was early in this book. She's afraid and fears she has no protection. And uh, Jorah, for all that we hate him and want him to die, is used very appropriately here because he knows just enough to tell Danny, hey, the Dothraki really don't work that way. It's not gonna it's not gonna function as you think it's going to. But he isn't Dothraki himself, so his loyalties are to her. I mean, kind of. I mean Jorah's still spying for Varus and Illyrio, and his loyalties are ultimately to himself. But he's his loyalties are more to her than the Kalasar as a whole. So he can be kind of more real to her than her uh, Dothraki allies can be. And as such, he he cancels her to run. And that's what makes this chapter such a great uh, temptation crucible for Danny. Like she's George has spends the first chunk of this chapter establishing so perfectly that she is trapped in this corner. There is no way out except to run, and yet she refuses to go. And it's for the most sympathetic of reasons. It's not because she wants to stay in charge. It's not because she just enjoys lording herself over everybody. It's because of love and hope and home, and she she feels everything slipping away. And she says she she won't leave him. She's she's going to do anything. But that she's stubborn, stubbornly, miserably says she's not going to go. And it's in that moment, of course, that Miri Mazdur walks in. It could be no other. When the student is ready, the master shall appear. Oh, my gosh. That's so good, man. There's so much stuff to pull out from all the things you said. I think it's a fantastic point you make about how Dothraki customs are being explored here and how Drogo falling from his horse symbolizes him losing his power, kind of his fall from power is literal a literal fall from his horse. You know, it kind of reminds me a little bit in a way of how like customs in Pentos are if the Prince of Pentos can't deflower the maiden of the field and no longer then he will be his throat will then be cut as as Illyria will tell Tyrion in a dance with dragons. Or, you know, and of course the Westerosi context too, where you have characters like Joffrey and Rhaenyra who get literally cut by the Iron Throne, which to them means that the Iron Throne has rejected them. Now that metaphor is a little more um in your face than, say, Drogo falling from his horse, so to speak. But I think that George loves to layer the things that he's talking about and a way that makes the the culture more interesting and more interesting to read that it's not just the same verbatim thing happening at the same time. But at the same time, even though you have different ways that are symbolizing people's fall from grace or fall from power, it is still resulting in the same thing. Joffrey and Rhaenyra being rejected from the Iron Throne and not being the king and queen for that much longer in the story when that when those two events happen. The Prince of Pentos then having his throat cut immediately after. Or Khal Drogo falling from his horse and then losing his power within the matter of a few hours after that event itself. Speaking of Khal Drogo, the other thing I wanted to talk about a little bit is how I, I love that comparison you make between Drogo and Robert. In that, you know, in Danny 7, Drogo has been 
terribly, horrifically wounded in the battle in the Lazarene town, but because of his conception of masculinity and his conception that he has to be this manly man who rides his horse forever and ever and ever and never stops riding and can't stop riding or else his Kalasar will revolt and slit his throat or kill him, he just mounts his horse despite having this terrible, horrible injury. And indirectly, this does lead – well, indirectly slash directly, depending on your perspective, this does lead to Drogo's death here on, on the Dothraki Sea. In similar fashion as Robert's conception of masculinity has him chasing the great terrible boar deep into the king's wood in order to kill him because he won't let – he's not – he's still the, the same man who can fuck any maiden, kill any warrior on the battlefield and defeat any pig in the, in the king's wood. And I think that's really, really good that George is saying like, hey, wait, stop to consider who these guys are. You know, fantasy – and this is not to – this has kind of changed a little bit in recent years, but fantasy used to be the purview of mostly – well, let's be honest, white males who are a little bit more nerdy, perhaps college educated and stuff like that, they would look at a character like Conan the Barbarian and be like, that's the guy I want to be, muscled like a maiden's fancy, as what Ned describes Robert Baratheon. Drogo is described in similar circumstances, being huge, muscled, long, flowing hair that's never been cut, has always been victorious on the battlefield. You know, like us, it's like these kind of like nerdy dudes. We're like, yeah, that's what I want to be. I'm going to get back to the gym. I'm going to do a squat like in the gym and stuff like that. I'm going to be just like Drogo. I mean, we don't like think that like consciously, but subconsciously it probably impacts us as well. But George wants us to interrogate that and interrogate what mas- what that type of masculinity leads to. Like Emmett and I have talked about in the past, it's not like that masculinity is just bad in and of itself, that the things that you like to do as, as a dude are bad to go hunting and fishing and camping and lifting weights, I guess, and, you know, writing essays and, you know, all the masculine things that, you know, men love to do. But when it takes kind of a more toxic outlook, it leads to terrible consequences for these guys. Drogo was going to die within the next few days in the Dothraki Sea because he refused to sit his ass down and be treated for his wounds. Robert likewise has died a few chapters past because he refused to stop hunting the pig because he had to prove his masculinity to all of Westeros and the high lords and the small folk alike. And that's saying something. I think that's the message that George is communicating, that these guys have all been brought down by themselves, they're kind of like toxic slash altered slash bad conceptions of masculinity. And I think that's really, really good. I completely agree. That's exactly what George is going for. And it's so crucial to set up that contrast between Danny 7 and Danny 8. Danny 7 was only a few chapters ago, three chapters ago. Well, previously, early in the book, you would go like 10 or 12 chapters in between checking in with Danny and the Dothraki. Now they're coming really fast. And part of that is to emphasize what a, a dizzying fall from grace this feels like for Danny. Like just in her last chapter, the Dothraki were on top of the world. Yes, they were doing terrible things she wasn't exactly comfortable with, but they were in charge. They were in command. They were getting the slaves together to sell to go off and conquer Westeros and tear down the stone houses and that whole Conan-esque speech that Drogo gives. And now, as soon as this chapter starts, that's all falling apart. And that that really puts you in Danny's head as, as she suddenly as she goes, "No, no, we were so close." That's what she says. What had she ever done to make the gods so cruel? She had finally found a safe place, had finally tasted love and hope. She was finally going home, and now to lose it all. As you say, what makes this chapter work so well is that it grounds the horror in these, these very relatable, understandable character dynamics and motivations. We get what Danny is doing. It's important that we relate to Danny psychologically, even while understanding at a more sociological level that Miriam Azdur is not wrong to view both her and Drogo as villains. It's important that we can see that the road to hell is paved with good intentions, that, to borrow from Elsie Mormont, the things we love can destroy us. Danny is engaging in blood magic not out of a Euron-esque desire for power 
or out of a desire for vengeance or something like that, but to save love, to save hope, to save a home, the thing she's never had. And that's what leads her to make this deal with the devil, with Miriam Mazdur. And that's so important. You know, I think, and this is something I'm, I'm writing about in the my big essay on Euron that I'm currently writing, is that the true essence of horror is not just that there are monsters at the door. It's that we are going to let them in. It's that the, the characters are going to be culpable in, in, in their downfall. That's what really makes good horror stick with you and makes you walk through your day with the stories in your head going, oh man, could I make a mistake like that? And that's really important. So, and, and, and George sets up this chapter to make us understand Danny's decision. So he, he's immediately working us to make us sympathize with Miriam Mazdur. He has Quotho, who really is just one of the series' worst people on the whole. He not only blames her for Drogo's fate, but he's proposing the most gruesome of punishments and threatening Danny with the same. So as a first-time reader, that puts us right where George wants us to be. We're rooting for Danny and Miriam Mazdur and hoping that they can work together. Not just to save Drogo, because really, to hell with Drogo on his own. He's, <laughs> he's not that much better than Quotho on the whole. But we want them to succeed so they can save themselves from rape and murder. But as soon as they're left alone... Miri Mazdur sets up the dynamic between her and Dany that brought them both here and will guide her actions, that they're not just equals trying to survive in a man's world. That might be how Dany is kind of thinking of it in the moment, but that's, that's not fully accurate. You have this quote, Dany turned back to Miri Mazdur. The woman's eyes were wary. So you have saved me once more. And now you must save him, Dany said. Please. You do not ask a slave, Miri replied sharply. You tell her. And that's fascinating because that's Drogo she's quoting there. That's what Drogo said in Danny 7 when Danny was kind of politely asking Miri Mazdur, hey, could you help me when, when my child comes since you have experienced with midwifing? And Drogo laughed and said, Khaleesi, moon of my life, you do not ask a slave, you tell her. So Miri Mazdur is subtly reminding Danny that no matter how many times Danny quote unquote saves Miri Mazdur, the latter is only in the position to need to be saved because of Danny, because of her claim to the Iron Throne and Drogo setting out to act on it. That's the only reason Miri Mazdur was ever put in danger. That's one of the clues from George that while he's priming us to be sympathetic to Mary Mazdur and want, us to want her to succeed, that the relationship between Danny and Mary Mazdur is not just one between bros and that Danny really has to, to learn that if she's going to you know, be a good leader going forward. And Mary Mazdur finally admits that while the Blood Riders' violence of proposed violence was horrifying and while they're, of course, bigoted, terrible dudes in general, they're not actually wrong about her. As it turns out, she actually is a blood mage. And as she says, only a blood mage like her can save Drogo. It's the same theme we see in the best Star Wars movie, Revenge of the Sith, in which Anakin is tempted to the dark side, not out of a lust for power, but because Palpatine convinces him that the Jedi will be unable to prevent Anakin's wife from dying on childbirth, as, as Anakin has had visions of. Anakin asks, well, can I learn that power? And Palpatine slowly turns to him and says, not from a Jedi. And that's what sets up Anakin's downfall, that he thinks only the Sith can help him out, and Danny thinks only blood magic can, can save Drogo. And th that's very sympathetic. On the flip side, of course, Danny also thinks that she, she must have no fear because of the blood of the dragon. And having no fear is a bad thing in this story, just in general. Jorah says in this very chapter that Quotho has no fear in the face of death and so will do terrible things. Waymore Royce's lack of fear got him killed by the others in the prologue. And, and then there's Night's King in the backstory, who reportedly knew no fear and thus was seduced by his icy pale queen. A dead man knows no fear, as Jorah says, is also about the whites, you could say. They, they lack all human emotions. And so you can see George is suggesting that fear is an important part of humanity. And Ned, of course, would agree. He has that great line to brand that, you know, when you're afraid, that is the only time a man can be brave. And Danny is definitely brave here. But, wow, she really ought to be listening to those fears, Jeff. 
Yeah, she really should be listening to those fears. You know, I was also thinking of the other example too, of where Catelyn tells Rob, where Rob is considering having the Great John Umber lead the lead the army down against Tywin Lannister. That Rob is like, he's absolutely fearless. He'd be the great guy for the job. And Catelyn's like, yeah, you're 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 my husband and your father, Ned. He's not a fearless dude. Brave, yes, he's absolutely brave, but we don't want a fearless man leading these people into battle because that is going to lead to all sorts of people dying in the battle, of course. And I think like it's really, really good that you bring up the Revenge of the Sith uh, parallel here. I think it's awesome. We're not supposed to go like, oh, wow, this is, these two should team up. This is awesome. Danny and Miriam Mazdor would be a great team. Instead, we're supposed to go like, yeah, this. there's something off about this. And yeah, we sympathize with Danny because you bring up those great reasons. And the other reason too is that she's trying to protect her unborn child. You're like, these are absolutely sympathetic reasons. But imagine the point of view from Miri Mazdor's perspective. What is her background? What is her perspective? Well, her background is that she was a god's wife at the temple of the Lazarene town. And her perspective is that the Dothraki just sacked the shit out of that Lazarene town killed a lot of her friends, raped numerous and countless women in the town itself, and then burned her fucking temple to the ground. Like, that is the perspective that she's bringing in. So when she is doing these dark, terrible, horrible, magical things, she is doing it be with that context in mind and with the idea, ultimately, to prevent further death and suffering at the hands of the Dothraki by other innocents, whether it's more Lazarene whether it's Westerosi even. I'm not saying that's totally in her, in her mind that point to save the Westerosi. But at the same time, you do kind of – Miri Mazdor is a bit sympathetic to the story, to the plot, I would say. Miri Mazdor is sympathetic to the plot, definitely not sympathetic to the character of Daenerys Targaryen as we're going to discover in Daenerys 9 and 10. I think that's a great distinction to make. And I think George understands that the core of a lot of great drama is people doing bad things for good reasons. And that's a, just a great way to challenge your audience. And I think that's something that connects the political side of A Song of Ice and Fire to the magical side, because in both cases, you have people doing that. And this chapter is a great example of it. So you, you have Danny going all in on blood magic for the best of reasons, but George immediately emphasizes the costs with that great mantra, only death may pay for life, which is really at the core of a lot of the magic in A Song of Ice and Fire is that idea of, of that kind of ghastly trade of death for life. You see that with uh, the Azor Ahai Nissa Nissa backstory. You see it with Melisandre proposing to to burn people with king's blood to, to gain power to save the world. You see it even with the Beric Dondarrion and Thoris of Mir, where no third party is dying to bring Beric back, but parts of Beric are being sacrificed. Parts of his memory and identity and humanity are just gone. And you have that constant question. Okay, you have good ends. Like, you know, Beric Dondarrion is fighting for the people and Azor Ahai wanted to save the world and... You know, he did it sorrowfully, and Thoros is sad to see what happens to Beric, and these are not just cackling monsters, but the, the effects of what they're doing are just are so kind of stomach-churning and hard to shake and horrifying. And so you have to wonder, oh, geez, could I be talked into that? Because I like to think of myself as a person who wants to do who wants to do right and has good goals, so could I be talked into some nefarious means to achieve those ends? And you, you see a real kind of a, a mixed picture for Danny here. Because you have Miriam Azdur confirming that it's not Danny's life she speaks of that needs to be sacrificed in order to uh, attain Drogo's life. But on the other hand, she also subtly reveals that Drogo's horse isn't actually going to be enough either. When she says, it is not a matter of gold or horses. This is blood magic, lady. Only death may pay for life. 
So Danny is courageous enough to be willing to sacrifice herself. She tells herself when Miriam Mazdar brings up Only Death May Pay for Life that if she has to die to save Drogo, she's going to do it. But she's so relieved when she doesn't have to that she'd have, she, she doesn't question Miriam Mazdar any further about what the real sacrifice is going to be. And as Miriam Mazdar will suggest in Danny 9, at some level Danny realizes that no, a horse is not going to be enough. But she went forward with it anyway. So they, they bring in uh, Drogo's horse and, and kill the poor beast. I love it you mentioned when, when the knife comes out because... In, in my memory, this chapter really goes insane when the shadows start dancing, and that is definitely an important ramp up in terms of the tone of horror. But I think that really might happen earlier when the knife comes out, because Danny has that, that really spooky line where she says she has no idea where that knife came from. And it's like, you know, maybe Miriam Mazdur just had it up her sleeve and pulled it out really deftly and quickly, but maybe it wasn't there until she needed it. Maybe she summoned it into being. It just, again, it, it makes my skin crawl. And you have you have young Jogo there, one of one of Danny's co's, and he I think he's there to voice anti blood magic sentiment from a more sympathetic perspective than Quotho. Like again, Quotho is an outright monster. We're not inclined to listen to anything he has to say because he's just awful in every respect. Jogo is more sympathetic. Like he's young, he's got that little wisp of a mustache. That's something George uses over and over to make us sympathetic to someone is when they're they're trying to grow a beard or a mustache and they're a little too young. Like he does that with Rob Stark. He does that with uh, Devon Seaworth, and, and Jogo isn't proposing to like to rape and torture Miri Mazdur. He wants to kill her, but he's, he's just kind of pleading with Danny, this is horrifying, please let me stop this. And that, again, is supposed to cue, cue us as readers into going, oh, I was on Danny and Miri, Miri Mazdur's side for a second, but this is starting to get bad. Maybe Jogo is right. Danny doesn't agree, though. She insists that this is the same as her eating a horse heart back in Veistoth Rock, but everything about the tone of this chapter tells us that she's wrong, that she's fundamentally fucking with the laws of nature here, and, and no good is going to come of it. You have Drogo now in his bath of blood, and again, the comparison is to Robert. You had Robert in his bed of blood in Eddard 13 when he was back from the hunt. Ned was sitting by his bedside, and he, he was just as distraught as Danny, just as worried about what are we going to do next, and just as heartbroken about losing the person he, he loved most. But you got to wonder, if someone had come into that room at Robert's deathbed and said to Ned, hey, you can bring him back, you can make him live again, all you have to do is sacrifice something, only death may pay for life. You know, I don't think Ned would do it. What do you think? I'm with you. I don't think Ned would do it either. I think Ned ultimately realizes that there's a greater good at stake that goes beyond the individual. And of course, Ned is never confronted with existential supernatural horror in his chapters. But still, he knows the type of person that Robert is and knows that he can't bring him back and bring him back might not be even worth it. And you know, for all the shit we've given Mary Mazdor, and we haven't given her a lot of shit to be honest, but for all the shit we have given her, she does warn Danny in the chapter that, you know, they say that death might be cleaner than what I'm about to do. And it's so great because, gosh, I'm trying to think of like a, like a, like a modern context. Like think about like a, the death of a close relative or, or death of a close friend, which many of you who have listened to this podcast have experienced. If the option was presented to you, I can bring back that person from their deathbed but death would be cleaner than what I would do. Would you take the option? It's a hard question, right? It's a really hard question because we have to consider the person, consider the context, consider like what the actual, what she's actually saying. Now, of course, Mary Mazdor is being very, very vague about death would be cleaner and stuff like that because she has to be. She has to be vague because she wants Danny to go through it. She wants Danny to give her approval and her assent to what Mary Mazdor is about to say. Now, 
I think Ned ultimately would say no because Ned is the guy who is all about making the hard choices that would steer away from what Danny does here. Now, that's not to say, of course, that Ned greater than sign Daenerys Targaryen, but it is to say Ned greater than sign Daenerys in this specific context, I think. Agreed. And obviously, there are considerations for Danny that aren't there for Ned. Ned is not a, a pregnant teenager. Ned is Ned thinks he has a bunch of swords around him to protect him. He turns out to be kind of wrong about that. The, the point being is that thinking you can reverse death or bring someone back from the dead or challenge death is fundamentally attempting to have too much power. It's attempting to have too much control. A death is a natural thing as much as life, and you certainly have to go through the grieving process, which involves denial and anger and bargaining and all those stages. But to try to uh, defy it, well, that's how you get the whites. That's how you get a zombie army coming down on Westeros. As Maester Aemon will say the same in A Feast for Crows, only the whites have been back from the Wall of Death, and we know what they are like. We know. And that's not, that's not anything you want to see. Again, though, you got to keep it grounded in relatable motivation. So you get that haunting final line from Danny before she leaves the tent. Bring him back to me. That's what she wants here. Then she steps outside, and everything goes absolutely fucking insane in the most satisfying way possible. The sky is a bruised red, a hot wind is blowing, a crowd has gathered to glare at Danny. Again, it's such this brilliantly unified aesthetic, all working to support the tone that Danny has now gone just too far. Danny walks out of the tents, leaving bloody footprints behind, and boy, is that some symbolism right there. She's literally leaving blood behind with every step she takes, and that stands out as an, a motif in Danny's story, especially coming to this after season 8 of Game of Thrones. And they let Jorah know what's up, and he calls her a little fool, which, as you say, go to hell, Jorah. But also, that's that's there to emphasize how far she stepped over the line, because generally speaking, Jorah does not talk to Danny like that. He does, he does not insult her and call her names for the most part, and he, he's just going pale. And this is just to emphasize to the reader, oh, wow, we've really stepped over the line here if Jorah is talking to Danny like this. She, she, she's gone too far. And he reminds her once more, ah, they could have run. There was a chance to get away, but now they can't. And then you get that spine-chilling line. Through the blood-spattered sand silk, she glimpsed shadows moving. Ooh, gods, that's good. Not only is it an extremely vivid image, like you can just see it in your mind's eye like it's a movie, but it, it links the blood and the shadows. That you know, The blood-spattered sand silk is, is how you perceive the shadows. So death and suffering has called forth these demons. Blood has called forth the shadows. And again, that's a motif we're going to see over and over in the series. And it's a great example of how George handles magic. He keeps the specifics vague to make it kind of spooky and occult and not just like a boring series of mana classes like we're playing an RPG or something. Like he doesn't go, he doesn't go Miriam Mazdur does exactly this spell and she says, you know, Wingardium Leviosa and waves her wand and summons these shadows and this, this shadow's name is this and this shadow's name is that. And then this is how, you know, he doesn't do any of that. But the themes come through loud and clear. The kind of emotional, moral takeaway is, is, is very clear in this chapter. What's happening is unclear and inappropriately in an exciting way where you're just reading with white knuckles to actually find out what's going on. But what it means is crystal clear. Like You have the Blood Riders returning with the more culturally sanctioned healers, the members of the Kalasar, again bringing that, that theme of cultural conflict to the forefront. They see the shadows at work and everything gets boiled down to these two lines. This must not be from Quotho versus this will be from Danny. And that, that just, that's, that's perfectly captures what it feels like when a taboo is broken. Someone saying, no, you can't, you can't do this. And Danny's saying, no, this is the new order. I have broken the wheel. This is the way things are going to be now. I've broken through your taboo. And you, you see that, that theme so clearly that Danny is, is, is crossing a line, albeit for good reasons. So the Blood Riders turn on her for good at that point. As you say, Kohola, who's always been kind to her, just spits in her face. 
They prepare to kill Mary Mazdur, Danny orders her cause to stop him, young Quero tries, and immediately dies for it. And that just says so much. Like, that's the Game of Thrones right there. The innocents are dying as part of these, the, the High Lords fights and cultural squabbles. Like, Quero has nothing to do with any of the decisions made in this chapter. He's not the one who, you know, uh, potentially poisoned Drogo. He's not the one who made Drogo rip his, his poultice off. He didn't tell Danny to summon Miri Mazdur. He didn't tell Quotha to be an asshole. And yet he's the one who's dying for it before any of those people. This is the price of blood magic, that innocents are going to die for your climb to power. It's already spinning out of control. Like, Danny is trying to save lives in this chapter, but she's already helping end them. You have Jorah killing Quotho, who, again, is the worst, but, but Jorah is wounded in the process, and Quotho's death is so grisly that it just feels, again, like, unnatural, like a head exploding. Like, again, like all the laws of physics are breaking down, and... You get the sense that all these people are kind of part of the sacrifice. Like, Quero and Quotho aren't directly connected to the blood magic going on in the tent, but it feels like they're part of the sacrifice, too, at some level. You know what I mean? Like, you see this just extraordinary passage that uh, you alluded to really well in the synopsis, but I, I kind of have to read at length because it captures so well what's going on in this chapter. The Dothraki were shouting, Miri Mazdur wailing inside the tent like nothing human, Quero pleading for water as he died. Danny cried out for help, but no one heard. Rakero was fighting Hago, Arak dancing with Arak, until Jogo's whip cracked loud as thunder, the lash coiling around Hago's throat. A yank and the blood rider stumbled backward, losing his feet and his sword. Rakero sprang forward, howling, swinging his Arak down with both hands through the top of Hago's head, the point caught between his eyes, red and quivering. Someone threw a stone, and when Danny looked, her shoulder was torn and bloody. No, she wept. No, please, stop it. It's too high. The price is too high. More stones came flying. She tried to crawl toward the tent, but Koholo caught her. Fingers in her hair, he pulled her head back, and she felt the cold touch of his knife at her throat. My baby, she screamed, and perhaps the gods heard, for as quick as that, Koholo was dead. Ago's arrow took him under the arm to pierce his lungs and heart. When at last Daenerys found the strength to raise her head, she saw the crowd dispersing, the Dothraki stealing silently back to their tents and sleeping mats. Some were saddling horses and riding off. The sun had set. Fires burned throughout the Kalasar, great orange blazes that crackled with fury and spit embers at the sky. She tried to rise, and agony seized and squeezed her like a giant's fist. The breath went out of her. It was all she could do to gasp. The sound of Miri Mazdur's voice was like a funeral dirge. Inside the tent, the shadows whirled. So that passage so perfectly captures the sense of escalation. A pot boiling over, like bad decisions piling on bad decisions and accidents and happenstance until like the earth is shaking under Danny's feet as everything flies apart. The Kalasar is collapsing in the wake of Drogo's death, just like the Seven Kingdoms after Robert's death. Again, the perfect Drogo-Robert comparison, like you have this uniting Sun King finger in the middle, and once he goes down, everyone goes their own way in civil war. And the sense that all, all these deaths of, of, you know, of Quero and Hago and Koholo, that they're all connected to Danny's original decision. That's why she says the price is too high. Like she's realizing, oh, this is all a result of, of me crossing the line with blood magic. And now all these people are dying. You get the great irony with of the gods hearing her when it comes to killing Koholo. So like they weren't listening when it came to saving Drogo's life. But when it comes to more death, then yeah, the gods are all ears, Danny. If you want to offer the gods more blood, they are happy to be on your side. And it's like you have, like, you know, the, the sun has set, you have great fires that are spinning embers at the sky, and Miriam Muster's voice is like a funeral dirge. Like, it feels like Danny has, like, summoned the apocalypse. Like, that's almost the tone you get from this passage. 
And that comes back to how Martin presents blood magic, that the price is too high, that in your efforts to save, you know, your husband or your people or the world, you will end up dooming your husband or your people or the world. Like, I think about Quentin down in the dragon pit. Father, why? Four men dead in as many heartbeats. And for what? Fire and blood, he whispered. Blood and fire. And that's where Duran's, you know, righteous drive to get back what happened to his family has led him. And, and you see the same thing here. And there's, there's such a bitter irony in the midst of all that that Danny goes into labor. It reminds me of a, when Stannis attacks at the wall and overruns Mance's camp. You have a, a Val rushing out to, to tell John what's going up with Dalla, Mance's wife. And he's like, oh, she's like, oh, Mance can't have left. It's begun. He's like, what, the battle? And she says, no, the birth. Battle and birth go hand in hand. Life and death go hand in hand. You have the same thing here. And so you have this... This wonderfully nightmarish chapter ends with one more nightmarish image of a sky without stars. Again, like Danny has broken the world. The stars are now gone. And Danny's futile attempts to escape the fate that she has, she has brought onto herself. And then she's taken into the very heart of the storm she summoned. And God, this chapter's final accomplishment is, is how it ends. Sir Jorah carried her into the tent. And that's all you need. George has done such a great job setting up the tone and the themes and the visuals that anything more would sully it. You don't need to actually see what's going on in that tent because whatever your head tells you is going on in there after reading this chapter is better than what anything George can come up with. And he knows it. And it's just perfect. It is absolutely perfect. And you know what's so great about it is that my image of what Danny is seeing inside the tent or potentially might see inside the tent probably wildly differs from what you, Emmett, would see and what those of you who are listening out there would are imagining is happening inside. Now, I think it's really cool when we get to Daenerys' ninth chapter, her next chapter in the Game of Thrones, that we do get something of a vision of what she sees in the tent, albeit in her unconscious dream state as she sees, you know, Rago bursting into flames and the dragon riding up out of her and all of these trippy fucking images that just kind of just whirl and dance around her in the same way the shadows whirl and dance around Miri Mazdor's tent. And I think that's so, so good. And, you know, something that just kind of struck me was you were, uh, reading, as, as you were reading that quote about the price being too high. In Daenerys 7, Daenerys Targaryen calls that the price of the Iron Throne, that this is the price of the Iron Throne. This is what I am fighting for, and I must pay this price now. And that price is the death of innocence, the rape of women, and the, and the selling of children into, into slavery. Now, she does reject that at some level at the towards throughout that chapter. But at the same time, she does essentially say that this is the price. I do wonder whether in Danny's final moments in A Dream of Spring, after she's blown up King's Landing, because guys, that's definitely happening in the books too, just in a probably a bit of a different context than what we saw in Game of Thrones season eight, that she will think, no, no, please stop. It's too high. The price for the Iron Throne is too high. And I just think that would be a brilliant way that Barton can tie it all together, bringing back this chapter that he wrote in the early 1990s or mid 1990s and and whenever he gets to a dream of spring next week he'll be like i need to like bring it full circle and have danny realize that the price of destroying king's land and killing innocents bringing fire and blood to westeros no no please stop it's too high the price is too high Damn, Jeff, that was brilliant. It's almost like you're really good at talking and writing about this series or something. Who knew? <laughs> oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm very much inspired by your brilliance and, and 
excellence in this. I mean, like sometimes I wonder whether, whether people are like thinking that I just don't have anything to say when we're doing these these synopses and these death sections, but that's actually not true. Uh, in fact, most of the times I'm just sitting here just stunned being like, God damn it, damn it. How do you say things that make these chapters just come to life in ways that I never experienced in like the five, six, seven times that I've read these chapters in A Game of Thrones and on into the rest of the series? So I, you know, again, we're kind of doing this a lot in these podcasts recently where we're just like kind of hugging each other in these kind of long embraces <laughs> and whispering sweet nothings into each, ears, into, into each other's ears. Or actually into your guys' ears because you're the ones who are listening to us now. But I think it's totally appropriate. So I really appreciate all the depth and complexity you're bringing in. And I love, love all of the explanation of the thematic side of the magic and what Miri Mazdor is bringing to Daenerys. And I just love how it all connects through character. That's brilliant and beautiful on George's part and brilliant on beautiful and brilliant and beautiful on your part in order to elucidate on it and make me feel like I'm starting to finally understand this chapter this eighth chapter of Danny in a Game of Thrones oh shucks buddy well we just we do such a good job of exciting each other and bringing out the best in each other and whenever I, whenever you do a synopsis I'm always just finding myself just eager and on the edge of my seat near the end because I, I can't wait to talk about the stuff because you brought it to life so vividly and yeah I mean I, I, I think George's critique of how magic is generally done in fantasy as kind of being a lazy shortcut or very kind of boring and explicit is valid and is, is a problem with the genre. And I absolutely love how he handles it. And as we'll talk a little bit more in about a bit, I think this chapter is very representative of how George handles magic in the series as a whole. But before we get to that, we should uh, take care of foreshadowing and groundwork for this chapter, A Game of Thrones, Daenerys 8. Absolutely. So in this chapter, we do have Jorah telling Danny that they need to go to a shy in order to escape the Dothraki. And that's interesting, right? Because a lot of folks thought that the path for Daenerys would eventually run through a shy. But that's actually probably not going to be the case. And this might be where we're seeing George's abandoned foreshadowing in book one. Because Danny was supposed to, as you've so eloquently put it elsewhere, visit, quote, Mordor Town in person. And this seems to have persisted in book two, in which our favorite, favorite fucking character, Quaith of the Shadow, also urges Danny to go to a shy, specifically to find, quote, truth. Seemingly, though, this storyline died with the five-year gap to the point that by 2008, George R. R. Martin was saying things like, well, we're only going to visit a shy in dream and memory. And then in 2016, at the Guadalajara Book Festival, someone asked George, well, are we going to go to a shy? And George R. R. Martin said, no, we're not going to go to a shy, although I do have a point of view character who has been there, Melisandre. And in her chapters, multiple chapters, very exciting, in The Winds of Winter, we are going to be exploring a shy in her memory. So I'm very excited to see what Melisandre brings to the fore and exploring a shy as a place. Now, of course, we do get a part, we get a bit of a description of it in the world of ice and fire, but it is, of course, shrouded in darkness as well, you know, as Mordor Town would be, right? As I've said before, I'm kind of divided on the shy question. I do think it's too bad at some level that we're not going to go there because George did do a lot of work of setting it up. And it, it kind of seems to be the fire equivalent to the land of always winter in the far north from whence the others come. And that would be really interesting to see. It's it's the kind of creepy eldritch place I tend to love in stories. But by the same token, the reality probably couldn't match the wild image in my head. In the same, to in the same way that I don't need to see what's actually inside Miri Mazdur's tent, and it's going to be way more interesting in my imagination, a shy is probably way more interesting in my imagination than Danny just like literally wandering the streets. We did one of our monthly patron-only episodes, which can be found at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-I-F, on the city of Volantis. 
And that's a city so grounded in politics and history that it works so well when you just get like a walking tour of it via Tyrion and a Dance with Dragons because you really want to explore it on a grounded level. A shine doesn't really work like that. It might be more interesting in kind of dreams and flashbacks from Melisandre's perspective. And as you said earlier, we are both huge fans of Daenerys' storyline in A Dance with Dragons. Her much maligned, much unfairly maligned storyline in A Dance with Dragons. I think that's Danny's best storyline and one that really captures the struggle within her character. And if she'd gone to a shy, maybe that would have been the same, but maybe she might have turned into more of like a camera POV and it would just be all about the weirdness in a shy. And that might be less interesting. So. While I'll, I'll always mourn the Ashai that could have been, this might be a situation where the story got better because of the uh, foreshadowing that got abandoned. Yeah, I, I, I do agree with it. At the same time, like, we're like, yeah, it's fine that it got abandoned, but did we really need to go to fucking Karth in A Clash of Kings? Because that city just sucks so, so bad. We, I, I kind of wish Danny's storyline in Clash of Kings had been like, one chapter of the House of the Undying right at the beginning, and then a shy, or like put the House of the Undying in a shy, because like you know the House of the Undying with all its weird, trippy, evil sorcerer drug nonsense seems like it could have fit into a shy. But we'll have plenty to say about how we we don't, we don't much care for Karth when we actually do get to Karth. So that wraps us up for foreshadowing and groundwork, taking us into the discussion section. As I said earlier, we want to dig into a little bit more about how magic works in this chapter and what that signifies for the series as a whole. Yeah, so, I mean, we've done all the character, emotional, and thematic beats for this chapter and the different scenes for the chapter. But, Emmett, God, I, I got to admit this. I, You know, even though I've read these books numerous times and now I've had you explain how I'm supposed to feel about this chapter in A Game of Thrones, I, I don't get the magic necessarily as much as I should. And I feel like I should, like, understand some of, like, the physics and mechanics of it. Yes, I understand, like, the reasons why George integrated it into the story. I understand why – I understand how compelling that it is as a narrative device in the story to kind of bring Danny's themes down to a down to a head or come crashing down her head rather. But at the same time, I still don't fully understand what's going on in the end with Mary Ma's door. I mean, yeah, I get the basic mechanics, but some things I don't get at a deeper level. Broadly, some of the things I don't understand. What was Mary Ma's hoping to achieve? What was the magic and the type of magic she was using here? I mean, hell, I'll start with the fundamental question that I still don't have a good answer to. What was Miri Mazdor's motivation? Was Miri Mazdor actually trying to save Drogo or was she, you know, I don't know, trying to kill Rago? Now, the next chapter sort of answers that question, of course, in Daenerys 9, but it's still a little bit ambiguous. What do you think, man? I agree that it's ambiguous. As we said in our episode on Daenerys' last chapter, it's supposed to be ambiguous. George leaves us a lot of clues in either direction so we can debate over it and struggle over what Miri Mazdor is really up to. But I think there are a lot of clues under the surface that Miri Mazdor is not acting in... in, in Danny's best interest, and she's already made the decision to turn on her and Drogo and Rago. As I said earlier, she has that line about, you know, you do not ask a slave, you tell her, which is indicating she's rebelling against her role as a slave. She, she's telling Danny only death may pay for life and tells her in her next chapter, you knew at some level the trade you were making had to be more than a horse, which means that she knew already that it wasn't going to be a horse, that she knew some human life was going to be have to given up for this scenario. And as people have pointed out, well, but it was Jorah who made the decision to carry Danny into that tent. You know, Mary Mazdur didn't do that. But on the other hand, we see with Maggie the Frog that people who practice blood magic are able to tell the future. So maybe at some level, Mary Mazdur knows all of this is going to happen and is just carrying it out. That's why she can take such dramatic actions, but also say, oh, this is just the will of the great shepherd and his will be done. Because maybe she just thinks, oh, this is just fate. I saw this coming. And, you know, the flames or the sky or the cloud, you know, whatever, whatever her medium is. And she's, she's just carrying it out. And I think that's something interesting Martin gets into 
with these more magically inclined characters is how much control do you really have over it? Which has always been an important part of stories that touch on prophecy, and this comes up explicitly in Bran's chapters in The Clash of Kings when Jojen and Mira show up at Winterfell. And Jojen is telling Bran about how his, all, all his depressing, bleak, you know, prophecies that everyone in the area is going to die horribly and that we can't do anything about it. And Mira says, well, why would the gods send us these visions if we can't do anything about it? And Jojen just says, I don't know. And I think that that's where you, that's I think that's where George comes down is it's fascinating to see how these characters deal with these visions. But the question of where these visions are coming from, that that's something he, he chooses not to answer for the most part. And I do love that that George leaves it ambiguous and leaves it up to reader interpretation. I mean, not totally, but in part, the reason why there's such a large fan community around Song of Ice and Fire and around Game of Thrones is because those questions about things like morality and whether the choices that characters make are right or wrong is something that we we debate consistently and we debate ethics and we debate decisions that and plot points, whether they're good or bad. But I also think that the element of magic being ambiguous and whether what you know, whether it, what it actually means is a good place to debate and discuss and stuff like that. But it kind of like along the similar lines, you referenced Jojen, Jojen Reed and the, and the magic and the prophecies that he has. I, I do have further questions. I apologize. I know. I've got so many questions. But, you know, is there some sort of like grand magical thing out in the world sort of thing? Or is it something more specific to specific religions or schools of magic in the world? I mean, what, what sort of magic was Miriam Mazdor invoking here? I mean, is it similar to someone like Melisandre's shadow binding we see in A Clash of Kings? I mean, we do have shadows, right? Dancing around the tent. Melisandre has shadows too that righteously uh, kill the terrorist Renly Baratheon and his terrorist underling Sir Courtney Penrose. So uh, I'm wondering whether there's like sort of a similar throughput either thematic or or actual or physical between Melisandre and Miriam Mazdor's magic. But, you know, I'm also a little bit confused by the glyph-covered knife that Miriam Mazdor draws. You, you know, it reminds me of the Dragonbinder horn that we see in A Dance with Dragons, the one that's covered in Valyrian glyphs that uh, Makoro interprets for Victarion and that Victarion carries on into Marine with the, with the intention of having his quote-unquote thralls blow as we see in his Winds Winter sample chapters. But actually, Victarion's the one who's going to blow it, guys. It's going to be so fucking great. So, you know, is Miriam Monster's magic, though, is it connected to Valyrian blood magic? Are we supposed to do are, – are we as readers supposed to draw a line between the sorceries that went into the creation of things like Valyrian steel and Miriam Mazdor ritually slaughtering the horse to uh, do something with Drogo? I mean, I don't, I don't know. I've, I've, I've got so many questions. I've asked about 15 there. I apologize for all the questions I asked. But you are the man to ask these questions. Oh, shucks. Not at all, Jeff. I mean, these are, are – extremely important questions for how magic works in the Song of Ice and Fire. And we're only given clues, but I think we're given very revealing clues. As you say, you have these connections between Melisandre and Miriam Azdur regarding the shadows. And you also have Quaithe as a shadow binder of Ashai. What's interesting, though, is that while Melisandre talks about her shadow babies as being children of R'hllor, servants of R'hllor, shadows are the children of the fire, and all that stuff she talks to Davos about, neither Quaithe nor Miriam Azdur are members of the R'hllor faith. And yet they're wielding shadows. So that suggests it doesn't cleanly break down into these simple schools the way Melisandre might think. So she is taking advantage of a shadow binding, a skill that's not necessarily anything to do with R'hllor. And you have Miri Mazdur saying she was taught by a number of people in her travels and her and Ashai and elsewhere. You know, Blood Mage is here, God's Wife's over here, Marwyn the Mage over here. Lots of different schools of thought. Euron Greyjoy is another great example of someone who is very deliberately drawing from a bunch of different magical wells of power. It's why he has all those different priests of different religions tied to the prowess of his ships and the Forsaken. And he seems interested in Eastern magic, but also there's hints that he was trained in Northern magic. And I think this, the idea George is going for is that 
there's there's all these various wells of power, but they all have the kind of the same themes in common, as you were saying earlier, that, you know, the surface is, is different and there's intriguing questions that make the various religions different. But even though the, you know, the old god's faith looks friendlier on the surface than something like Relorism, you have Bran's vision uh, in A Dance with Dragons when he's, he's flipping back through the the uh, Winterfell heart tree and everything it's seen while he's tripping on Jojen paste. And he sees that woman who pulls out a scythe, just like Mary Mazdur, and slit and slit someone's throat, just like Mary Mazdur, and the blood goes into the tree and Bran tastes it. So that suggests that at some level, all these faiths are kind of the same, and they're all built on blood. And yeah, the, the connections between Melisandre and Mary Mazdur, we brought them up before, but this chapter is really where they stand out on reread. It's not just blood magic, but as you say, the summoning of shadows. And it's not just that they're both temptation figures playing on the protagonist's hopes and fears to get them past cultural taboos. It's that both Melisandre and Miriam Asdur cloak their ultimate aim, which in both cases is, is the sacrifice of children in the name of ostensibly the greater good, in the pretense that sacrificing animals will be enough. Just kill this horse, Danny. Just burn these leeches, Stannis, and I'll sit back and wait for you to bring me the children. I, I think that's, that's really important for how Martin talks about magic. You, you brought up Valyrian blood magic, and obviously Melisandre is not, you know, from Valyria, because Valyria went into doom before even Melisandre was born. Miri Mazdur is Lazarine, not Valyrian. But Valyria really is ground zero for a lot of these issues that Martin likes to talk about with magic. The sense of, of horrible sacrifice and, you know, greed and ambition reaching you too, going too far, and then you, you have a downfall. And, you know, Valyrian, all of Valyrian magic has... I think Morrowind said is is rooted in fire and blood, and you you get you get both fire and blood in this in this chapter the the, the bed of blood the, the bath of blood that Drogo is in and then all the fires of the Kalisar raging outside. I think George doesn't want us to break everything down into distinct mana classes like oh this is the fire one and this is the ice one, but he wants us to look for what they have in common. Like Melisandre is the one who thinks you can just separate these things into rigid perfect categories. Every there is everything is binary in the world as she tells Davos, but so much in the story suggests that's not actually true. That, you know, fire and ice are at some level the same. Like the first chapter of the series, Garrett says nothing burns like the cold. And we see dragon class referred to as frozen fire. And of course, we see the ice dragon in, in, in Game of Thrones that, you know, there's there, there's a link between these two things. And we should be we should be looking for for what connects them. Like my, my favorite example of how Melisandre is completely wrong about this binary thinking is she's when she's saying like, oh, the world is divided into male versus female and cold versus hot and death versus life. And she says bitter versus sweet. These two things are opposite, bitter and sweet. But what's the ending of a song of ice and fire going to be like? Bittersweet. Bittersweet. Yeah. Oh, and then you also have lemonade too, right? Because that's bitter and sweet at the same time, right? So basically, lemonade is the counterpoint to Melisandre's <laughs> argument. Maybe she's never had lemonade before in her entire life. Who knows? Now imagining Shireen setting up a little lemonade stand, like five cents for lemonade with like cute <laughs> backwards E's. And Melisandre has to come up and drinks a cup and her eyes widen and she like has like the ratatouille flashback to her childhood. And that, and that changes everything. You know, George does do, indulge in some nerdy stuff about where does this magic come from and why is this magic like this when you get into like the details of how Valyrian steel is made. But I think he wants to dig deeper and find the connections. And the connections are usually all of these branches of magic are bad. Yeah, as, as listeners know, I've I have a theme that I have in this uh, Song of Ice and Fire Not a Cast podcast, and that magic sucks. Magic absolutely sucks in the series. It is not a way that we get around plot obstacles. It is the it is often obstacles for the re for the point of view characters and for readers to consider. I think it's a great way of looking at it, and I think it's a really good way of looking at it too of looking at magic as kind of this pantheistic force beyond nature and beyond reason that people can 
take something from, whether it's Jojen's prophecies, whether it's slitting the throat of the person in front of the werewolf tree. I think it's a brilliant connection between this, between that historical event that Brain witnesses in a dance with dragons, and what Miri Mazdor with her, and what Miri Mazdor does with the horse here. That's that's wonderful. And you know, connections too with what Melisandre does too. I think that's really really good. And I do wonder whether you have different these kind of different faiths and religions or not maybe not even faiths and religions in the form of Jojen Reed's prophecies but they're all connected by some sort of magical ether that's out there that people can summon parts of but it's never good when they summon it so i think that's a, that's an awesome way of putting it i tried to grasp a star overreached and fell it's one of my favorite lines in the series it applies to many things characters and politics but it also applies to the magic it absolutely does. And man, I can't wait to get to John Connick's chapters coming in 2024. Okay, just two more questions. I promise, just two more. All right, the first one. When the shadows changed from human to animal shapes, what is George trying to communicate here? You know, thematically, character-wise, plot-wise. Like, what are the mechanics? Like, how does Mary Mazdor do? No, you're not going to be able to answer that. How Mary Mazdor changes the shadows from human to animal form. I get it. We already talked about that. It's ambiguous. But I still wonder, like, what are the themes that George is trying to communicate with the the human shapes changing into animal shapes? And, of course, you have that that figure, that man who's wreathed in flame, too, that's there at the end where of, of Dan, what Danny sees when she's being carried into the tent. Like, what do all these things actually mean, man? What does it all mean? As you say, we're not going to know the how, and that's not really what's important. What's important is the why. And here is where I think we see how important a chapter Danny 8 really is to the overall magical side of A Song of Ice and Fire, and how different it is from the magic that's come before. Because we have seen magic so far in bits and pieces in A Game of Thrones. This is the not first time sorcery has reared its hideous head in the series. But this is different for a number of reasons. Up to this point in this first book, we've, associ- we've seen magic associated with the North, with the Others and the the whites and the the three-eyed crows attempts to stop them. Magic is northern. Magic is associated with the colors of blue and white and with uh, winter is coming. In this chapter, magic is associated with the east, with things we learned in the shy. It's associated with the colors of red and black, the colors of House Targaryen, and with fire and blood, the words of House Targaryen. Before this point in A Game of Thrones, magic has generally been associated with male figures. And I'm not saying that as a critique. It's just an observation that up until this point in the first book, Magic has kind of swirled around these last hero slash hero's journey archetype characters like John and Bran and Waymar Royce. In this chapter, magic is associated specifically with femininity. It's not, not just because it's two, two women descending into blood magic, but that Danny specifically forges this bond with Miriam Osdor because Miriam Osdor promised to help her with childbirth and because they're both being threatened with horrible, you know, ghastly sexual assault by these, by these Dothraki men. Most importantly, though, up to this point in A Game of Thrones, magic has been this bolt from the blue. It's like this inhuman force that just drops out of the sky that our heroes have some, have to react to and deal with. Now, it still gets at the human heart in conflict with itself. It still gets into the all-important choices that drive the drama. William R. Royce, you know, chooses to go out like a hero, you know, fearless and fighting with his sword against the others. Bran chooses to fly rather than die in his dream. Jon chooses to get his hand burned to save his life and Elsie Mormont's life, but... None of these characters are involved with there being magic in the first place. None of them brought the magical element about. The magical element happened to them. That is different in this chapter. In this chapter, magic is a choice. Magic is a decision being made by our characters. It is a product of the human heart in conflict with itself, rather than just simply inspiring the human heart to be in conflict with itself. And that is really critical for how George writes magic going forward. Look at Stannis and Melisandre, as we've been saying, with all those agonizing decisions Stannis has to make especially when you get to a storm of swords. 
Look at Arya and Jockin in Harrenhal, where Jockin offers Arya this, you know, this magical murder genie shortcut to dealing with her problems, but that really only makes her struggles about what to do with that power more difficult. Look at Bran and Hodor, where Bran is using his powers to possess this this poor servant of his who has no control over it. And is, is telling himself, you know, it's no one must ever know. It's okay. I just want to feel strong again. But that's really the dark side of Bran's story. Bran is generally one of the more sympathetic characters in The Song of Ice and Fire, but not when he's possessing Hodor. What does this have to do with human forms transforming into animalistic godlike forms? I think what George is saying is that's what the choice to do blood magic is. The transformation of the self from human to divine form, or at least the attempt to do so, especially with a character like Euron. And while George generally keeps the motivations sympathetic, as we've been saying, he firmly comes down on the side of blood magic being bad. That seizing the fire of the gods hollows out your humanity and inevitably results in the death of innocents, particularly children. You, you have that great quote you said earlier from Jorah in the show that there's a beast in every man and it stirs when you put a sword in his hand. That's what we're seeing here, the man transforming into the beast, that he's the man is wielding that sword without a hilt, as Dala calls it. That's what sorcery is. And so you have in a man becoming a horrible wolf beast or a man becoming a man on fire. That fire is magic. And as in Stannis's vision, it's consuming them whole. Danny thinks of herself in a storm of swords as a lonely god. And that's the theme that applies here. In, in the name of that which she loves about humanity, she has sacrificed it. And why did she do that? Why did she make this choice that would have kind of scared off most people? Because she is the blood of the dragon and knows no fear. That was the Valyrian mindset in a nutshell. And how'd that end for the Valyrian freehold? It ended in doom. It ended in fire and blood, not for everyone else, but for them. Mm, that's so good. Yeah. Fire and blood is how it ended in the Valyrian subcontinent. And it's how it ends here with fire and blood, you know, thematically and symbolically kind of raising up into this, this into the bleak black starless sky, of course. You do get that sense, too, when you read A Dance of Dragons and Tyrion's eighth chapter, I believe, where he's passing by Valyria and he still sees the glow of the red in the horizon. And he's talking with Makoro and Makoro is telling him how close they actually are to Valyria itself. And it's so spooky. And, you know, here we're seeing that kind of the same spookiness here of what it means to actually invoke fire and blood and what it means that, you know, the braziers are burning in Miri Mazdor's tent. Blood is being spilt and spattered all over the, the sand silk walls of the tent itself. Like this really haunting, spooky imagery that George invokes here. And I think it's brilliant, brilliant work on Martin's part that we are – you know, still transfixed by the imageries. I'm so transfixed that I'm asking Emmett like my 50 questions because you guys can't, unless you're a sworn sword, of course. And you have to, and I, and I love it. I, I love how much emotion that George builds into magic and the use of magic in the story and how it ultimately makes us feel hollow. It hollows us out. It hollows out our humanity. That's so, so good. And I, I, it like brought chills down my spine when you're talking about how they are offering these magical characters. Melisandre, Miriam Asdor are offering an out for these characters, Stannis and, uh, and Daenerys in particular. But all you got to do is just bring the children. And that's so spooky and so gut-wrenching too. And man, it's just it, – it does a whole lot for me and helps in my understanding of this chapter really, really well. So thank you so much for that. Well, you're very welcome, sir. And yeah, that's what happens to you. I mean, in that same Tyrion scene you're describing with Makuro – Makuro describes his visions of the other people pursuing Danny, and he concludes those visions and the chapter with this this horrible psychedelic vision of Euron as this like monstrous kraken sailing on a sea of blood. 
because Euron is the ultimate example of hollowing out your humanity in the name of the pursuit of magical power. And it's no accident that Euron is obsessed with Valyria, and it's no accident that Makuro brings up this image of Euron as they're sailing past Valyria, because Valyria in its doom, covered in sorcery and monsters and whatever happened to poor Arya Targaryen, that's George saying, hey, this is what magic actually looks like. It's not a guy with a pointy hat. It's not everyone in the classroom at Hogwarts learning to turn a spoon into a mouse or whatever it is they were doing. It's it, <laughs> it's the sacrifice of your soul and everything that makes life worth living. Mm, good. More more uh, more Harry Potter shit. I'm always here for that in the Not A Cast podcast. Okay. Final question. And it's it's a hard one. So I'm going to have to ask you to put on your, your thinking cap for this one. How much LSD did George R. R. Martin take while writing this chapter? All of it. All of it, Jeff. He took all the acid. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, it's, it's easy to, to make, you know, kind of dumb Cheech and Chong jokes about, about the LSD influence on A Song of Ice and Fire. But in all seriousness, LSD and the tropes associated with LSD, I mean, just, we call things trippy for a reason, had a huge impact on American pop culture and Western pop culture in the 60s and 70s, in the formative years of George R. R. Martin's life. I mean, you can see it if you just look at, like, Beatles album covers. Like, the first few Beatles albums, it's like, oh, look at those fresh-faced youngsters staring back at me from the from the album with their nice smiles. Then he gets like Revolver and Sgt. Peppers and it's like stuff is coming out of their eyes and they're wearing weird clothing. It's like, ah, someone gave you guys the good drugs. Bob Dylan, I'm looking in your direction. But I think you can see that the structure of an acid trip is definitely baked into this chapter. It's it's implicit where in the House of the Undying, it's explicit. Like Danny literally takes drugs before the House of the Undying. This is, you know, basically a bad trip. Like I said at the near the beginning of the episode. And the gradual ramp up in this chapter is part of that. That es- the, the constant escalation I was talking about really captures what it's like when uh, LSD or drugs like it go wrong. It's like, okay, I'm fine. I'm fine. I took a little too much, but I can maintain. Oh, shit, I'm in trouble. Someone save me from the inside of my own head. That's what this chapter is like. Like, LSD at its best makes you feel like you're a god. Like, every breath you take is like the summoning of divine forces. You just go, ah, look at those beautiful trees. I created those trees. At its worst, it feels like you've just stranded yourself in hell. And I think, so as such, it makes a it makes a great metaphor for summoning magic forces you then can't control. And they're in charge of you at that point. And maybe it's going to be good, maybe it's going to be bad, but you have surrendered your control to a certain extent. And I think it's that's going to be something to keep an eye on going forward, especially in Danny's story, and especially when we get to the, the Euron Ironborn story and A Feast for Crows and The Forsaken, that George is using his own, I think, plentiful experiences with drugs of this type to inform his fiction and inform his themes. But like a lot of great drug-influenced fiction, you don't need to take drugs to enjoy this. If you're a good, upstanding American like Jeff, you don't actually need to consume those Schedule One substances because this chapter is the drug. Like I remember Steven Spielberg talking about the first time he went to see 2001 A Space Odyssey and he was describing how all his friends were taking drugs to, to beforehand to go see it, to enhance the experience, but he wasn't because Spielberg is kind of like an adorable square. And he said... I went in sober and I came out high. The, that movie was the drug. And that's how I feel about this chapter. That is so good, man. And yeah, of course, I am a square, as you guys all know. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't do the drugs as it were, you know, good upstanding American citizen here. I've, I've actually never, you know, honest, honest to God truth, I've never taken any uh, Schedule One drugs in my entire life. And uh, I plan to continue doing that. And, you know, that's uh, not to damn any of you sitters out here, out there who are trying to get yourselves an early, trying to get yourselves a front row seat in hell. But, um, you know, I, I think it, I think it's really good, though, to have, you know, like I said before, to have your perspective, because it's, it's not something that I was very much exposed to in my youth and not even in my college and after college experiences, too. 
And, you know, like, as opposed to George, who, you know, protested the Vietnam War and who was a part of the hippie movement. And I don't know that he's explicitly admitted to to taking drugs or anything like that. Maybe he has at some point. I'm sure that someone will be like, ah, well, you forgot this interview back in 1975. And I'll be like, oh, sorry, I didn't have that. I didn't know I didn't have that right at the tip of my tongue when I was doing the fucking Not A Cast podcast. But he doesn't have to. You know, he my, doesn't I, have to admit it. If you look at the house, the undying, especially it's like, ah, how much did you take, George? How right. And I mean, he's a Cherry Garcia fan and all that all stuff, the lava too. So, I mean, if you like, look back at like photos of him when he was 20s and 30s, and he's like wearing the medallion. It's like, hmm, I see you, buddy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I see that, too. He doesn't have to explicitly admit it. But, you know, my, my family's background is like when George was protesting the Vietnam War. Like I had uncles who were fighting in the Vietnam War and people – and they had a very – negative reaction to those who were protesting the Vietnam War for a lot of emotional and political reasons and not things not worth expounding upon too much here because I don't want to speak for them because they have voices of their own. They're, they're, still, they're all still alive and that's, that's great. It's fantastic getting their perspective. But I think it's really good to have George writing this this way, this implicit drug trip on Danny's part in this chapter and her explicit one in The House of the Undying. It makes the story much more compelling because it provides a different perspective than one that I'm used to. And I think that also is something that I really appreciate from you, man. Like you provide a different compelling perspective in looking at A Song of Ice and Fire and looking at this eighth chapter in Danny's point of view in A Game of Thrones as from a very different perspective. I mean, we have we still have the politics and the characters and the themes and the stuff that I really like, but we also have the magic, which is like and the ma- but we also have the magic and the horror, which is not something that I was really all that big into before I started reading A Song of Ice and Fire. So having you with me here just makes makes it compelling and makes it interesting and makes me feel warm inside that you're you know my podcast host but you're also my friend like t- walking me through things that i don't quite understand so i really really appreciate it and i appreciate you so much damn right buddy and it's mutual i think as we were saying earlier we just go together like puzzle pieces really well and we bring different perspectives and different areas of interest and expertise but we're we're always interested to hear what the other person has to say and incorporate that into our own critique and i think that's what makes our little podcast work so well yeah, it really, really does. And I think that's as good of any as a point to kind of close out this podcast. So thank you, everyone, for listening so, so much. We really appreciate all your ears. And of course, we have wrapped our Game of Thrones Season 8 coverage up. So if, you listen, so if you're if you just listening to this chapter after we've done all that, we really appreciate you guys sticking around. And, you know, go back and listen to our back catalog. There's a lot of interesting, great episodes back there, too. So thank you guys so very much for listening. As always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean. And we recently became available on Spotify too. So if Spotify is your means of listening to podcasts, look us up as not a podcast. You have to look us up as not a podcast, unfortunately, um, on there because that was our first name before we decided to adapt a better one. If you haven't checked out our Patreon, guys, you can check it out at patreon.com forward slash not a cast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Patrons get early access to our episodes. They get patron-only episodes, the chance to ask us questions on the podcast. As Jeff said earlier, we're reaching for our stretch goal of $5,000 a month, at which point we'll be uh, covering uh, George R. R. Martin's 1982 vampire novel Fever Dream in patron-only episodes. So check that out if you haven't already. Patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, on Twitter, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. Personally, you can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brennan Beefish on Twitter, Brennan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is wars and politics of ice and fire.wordpress.com. 
So join us on Monday, May 27th, today, if you're listening on the general release date for this episode, for our second live stream episode. Our last stretch goal on Patreon at $3,500 a month unlocked quarterly live stream episodes. We're As part of our chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast, we do a chapter live on our YouTube channel so everyone can watch our ugly mugs discuss the chapter and talk to us in the chat and just make the make certain chapters more of a, an, an event unto themselves. You know, some of our more exciting and favorite chapters in the series. And that definitely applies to the chapter we're doing on Monday the 27th because it is a Game of Thrones Arya 5, the Ned Stark execution chapter. Hooray! No, man, it's not going to happen this time. This time, Ned Stark is going to escape. No, he's not going to escape. He's going to be sent to the Night's Watch where he's going to tell John about his parentage. And, you know, it's, it's not going to be a happy ending because, I mean, it's bittersweet, right? George just said the ending is going to be bittersweet. So Ned's going to go off to the Night's Watch, the Castle Black. He's going to chill with Jon Snow, advise Elsie Mormont not to go in the Great Raging North. It, it's all going to work out this time, right? Right? Just keep hitting that instant replay button and telling yourself that, Jeff. <laughs> but obviously, the execution of Ned Stark is one of the most devastating and iconic moments in the series. Uh, we hope to we hope to do it justice, as so many people have talked about it before. But we're really excited to do it, and we thought it would be a perfect choice to do a live stream on it because it is again an event that's kind of drawn the community around it. It's one of those events that made people love a Song of Ice and Fire in the first place and allowed for content creation like this podcast. So we've been looking forward to it for a while. So that's going to be up on our, our YouTube channel. We'll make the link widely available. It's going to be Monday the 27th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That episode, of course, will also be able to will also be up to listen to in an audio-only form in our regular podcast hosting areas next week. Yes, so we really look forward to seeing some of you guys tonight. And we really appreciate you guys' ears, we said before. And as always, we will see you guys tonight or next week.